This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's Thursday. This is my lucky day. Thursday's always my lucky day. So we're going to make it a great day for everybody uh, up at uh, the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol. Donald Trump has entered the building. I came in like a they ought to be careful. He's coming in to meet uh, Paul Ryan and uh, clear everything up with the GOP. So then the funds from all of the great donors of the GOP party can start to just pour in to the coffers of Donald Trump. Or not. We'll find out. Uh, Will the two boys get along on Capitol Hill? Are they going to mend the fences? Anyway, that's going on today. We'll be talking about that in uh, this first hour. Also, we will be uh, replaying an interview we did with Scott Sanders. He's a professor here, um, a sociologist at BYU, and was a part of a study with uh, Cornell professors and some from LSU as well about uh, the working class poor. We always hear about the, the minimum wage. We need to increase the minimum wage. This might be the research that backs why uh, the working class poor might need a little boost simply because a lot of people think they're just getting a handout. But uh, the working class poor are working. <laughs> they're doing everything they can and they can't get ahead. They can't get ahead. And when you hear the the actual demographics of who's suffering, it usually tends to be a mother with children. And um, so any uh, little help uh, might might help there. So it, it'll just give you a little background on um, why and what's really going on with the working class poor, especially because, you know, we hear about it all the time, and yet most of us aren't living it. So we'll get to that this morning. Also, just, you know, we, more ideas and, and tools. The goal of the show, remember, is to give you the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's going on around the world? Hey, good morning, Matt. Good morning, Caitlin. So presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump has no regrets about having a suggested former prisoner of war, John McCain. He claimed he was not a war hero. During a Wednesday morning radio interview, Trump said he's apologized to veterans since then but does not regret his words. Trump said, some people like what I said, if you want to know the truth. You know, after I said that, my poll numbers went up seven points. Former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney clearly has no interest in backing presumptive 2016 nominee Donald Trump. Continuing on his war path to get Trump to release his taxes, despite the candidate's claim that he's under an IRS audit, Romney wrote Wednesday on Facebook, It is disqualifying for a modern-day presidential nominee to refuse to release tax returns to the voters, especially one who has not been subject to public scrutiny in either military or public service. Then, Romney dropped a bombshell, claiming that releasing his taxes would prove Trump was not associated with any criminal organizations or, quote, unsavory groups. The massive Texas fertilizer plant explosion that killed 15 people and injured more than 160 others in 2013 was caused by arson, federal officials announced Wednesday. No arrests have been made and no suspects were announced. To date, $2 million has been spent on the investigation, officials said. The announcement comes more than three years after the devastating blast rocked the small town of the West. Twelve of those killed in the April 17th explosion were firefighters responding to the blaze when the plant erupted. 
The explosion destroyed more than 500 homes in a 37-square-block area, causing a crater 93 feet wide and 12 feet deep. Starting July 13th, Google is banning advertisements for payday loans and some related products, a move move that's designed to protect users from deceptive or harmful financial products. In a post on the Google Public Policy blog, the company said it will no longer allow ads for loans where repayment is due within 60 days of the date of issue, and in the United States will ban ads for loans with an APR of 36% or higher. And finally, Matt, thousands of people in Seattle were without power Wednesday Mm. morning after a raccoon snuck into a substation and somehow quote, de-energize the system. It took the city two hours of furiously working in the dark to restore electricity to the nearly 39,000 customers without power. But the raccoon repeatedly survived, or reportedly survived, to terrorize the city another day. The mass marauder. The raccoon. The raccoon. Somehow de-energized the... Entire city. That is crazy. 39,000 people. You know, they do have, they have really, um, you know, excellent use of their hands. Their paws. Do they? They really do. I've never gotten that close to Have a raccoon. You? Oh, raccoons are fantastic. <laughs> They're masked. Uh, we, we play with them. Every time we see one, our, our, we just run up and play with it. What's the worst thing a raccoon could do? De-energize 39,000 people without power. That's pretty funny. And we're worried about ISIS. We, <laughs> we need, need to, to be worried about to the raccoons. them vermin. The vermin are going to get us. Thank you, Caitlin. That's uh, great news. Great news update. Sorry for all you folks up in Seattle. But uh, you might want to set some raccoon traps. Isn't that what you used to do for a living, Ben? Yeah, I made a good living out of it too. And is that? And then you started making ice cream. Yeah, from raccoon trapping. It, it's surprisingly like the the two careers are actually pretty similar. They're pretty parallel. Surprisingly, yeah. I don't even want to hear about it. This sounds gross. Hey, it's Nutty Fudge Day, and uh, also Odometer Day. Today's the day you break your odometer and roll it back. That's illegal. Odometer, this is the history of your car, is recorded on this little counter. All those journeys you've taken for leisure. You know, today's uh, technologically driven automobiles and push and advanced automobiles, you probably can't mess with an odometer anymore. Back in the day, you used to have – you had to trust it. You had to make sure the odometer was intact because people would roll them back. There's probably a way. There is, but you'd have to call in somebody from MIT. You need a laptop and specific <laughs> programs, but there's a way. There's always a way. Uh, what do you think? Donald Trump uh, made his way to the Capitol and, you know, CNN, all these stations were covering it like it was the president coming to meet somebody. Yes. He landed on his Are, are you trying to plane. say that the cable news might have blown something out of proportion? Oh, I'd never say that. Oh, okay. But Donald's up there. And uh, this is a big deal because Paul Ryan, you know, made one comment, and I don't know if he knew the impact, but he was kind of saying – He was being honest. I don't know that I can endorse him yet. I need to know more. And then Donald, you know, out of character, just went off. Said, I can't support your agenda as Speaker of the House. Yeah, and your mom looks funny. I don't know why she got involved. He didn't – normally what Trump does is he'll attack someone personally. Right. But in that case, he just went after his policies, which was a different approach. Maybe he is becoming more presidential. Well, he probably needs to, right? Because there's – there's, it's one thing to win the people and he's actually doing an incredible job getting people. I mean there are 40 percent of the GOP that love the guy and he's got them behind him and I think right. he thinks that that's all you need except – there's also, I guess, the establishment that he seems to keep saying he doesn't care about, 
But within the establishment are also some of the donors. Yes. And the donors he has to care about because one of the things – the donors aren't coming out from the woods yet. No. They're not bringing their bags of money to Donald Trump yet. I heard a delegate speaking this morning and some of his concerns – are uh, what, you know what kind of justices would would Trump uh, appoint to the Supreme Court when he got yeah. that opportunity? Uh, vice President, who's he going to choose to be his running mate? What kind of person that will be? What does that mean yeah. for the, the Apparently ticket? Apparently, CNN has a has a has a breaking story on this that they're going to be reporting on later today. But he, they didn't say who it was. He's narrowed the list. Oh. Guess who? Newt Gingrich. No, that's interesting. That's what Sean Hannity's saying. Chris Christie. Uh, he was in the top five, but he's not supposedly the top three. Joe Biden. Nope. Oh. But by the way, Joe Biden says he'd be a great president. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you, Joe? Um, it's uh, Kasich, Rubio, and Portman from Ohio. So probably Portman, since the other two have said they don't want it. And Portman is like a serious man. He is a serious man. He's the guy. Wasn't he the guy that Bush always used to um, to practice the debate against Kerry? He would have Portman come in, I'm pretty sure, hmm. and he would debate Portman to prepare him to debate Kerry back in the day. Anyway. Um, so to prepare for today's meeting, yeah. Donald Trump has been making some policy comments. Yeah. Seems he might be shifting he, some he's things he's been running on for the last – Six months. Well, like, well, what would he shift? Well, he talked about uh, earlier this week about or last week how he said he goes, I cannot, I will not be self-funding my campaign. And he's looking for donors, which is one of the things he's been running on is that I am self-funded, so I can't be corrupted. Yeah, he can't win self-funded. Now he's trying to gather more money. They think that it'll cost a billion dollars over the next six months. And by the way, he's raised $45 million, and I wonder how much of that was from him. I don't know, but I don't know. He has raised forty-five million, but I guess too is he backing off on the Muslim ban because he, he was on no he, more Muslims. He was on Fox News last night, Ugh. talking with Greta, yeah, Van Susteren, and uh, she was trying to clarify and figure out where this is and where the the ban stands. I, I imagine. Um, so let's it's clip seven. The temporary ban, but with an unlimited that temporary period would could go on forever. The way it, uh, the way. No, it was never meant to be. I mean, that's why it was temporary. I sure, I'd back off on it. I'd like to back off as soon as possible because, frankly, I would like to see something happen. But we have to be vigilant. There is a radical Islamic uh, terrorism problem that you know our president doesn't even want to talk about. Okay. Mm. So he's he's kind of shifting. Shifting a little bit. Now, he said that people misinterpreted what he said. Originally. Originally. So play clip nine. This is originally what he said back on December 8th, 2015. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Until we are able to determine and understand this problem and the dangerous threat it poses. Hmm. Total and complete. Until we can figure it out. So, so it was a total and complete yes. withdrawal. Now, people are asking, okay, there are Our American band. servicemen who are overseas who are Muslims serving our country. Are they allowed back in? Bring them back. And he's like, oh, well, of course, of course. You have the, the new mayor of London. Yeah. Muslim. 
Yeah. Trump said, well, yeah, I think we'd let him in. And the mayor of London's like, I don't think I'm going to the United States for a while. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if I'll get out of there. He goes, I'd like to go talk to other cities, figure out how they're running things. But yeah, maybe we'll go to other countries instead of going to the United States. Play clip eight. This is at the end of the interview, Van Susteren trying to further clarify because it wasn't clear yeah. to her after yeah. about two to three minutes of talking about this. All right. Just, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But so it's a it's a ban on Muslims with exceptions. And oh, that of would course, be always, you have to have exceptions. Okay, okay, well, the way that everybody read it was it was across the table. No, you have exceptions, but and ideally you won't have a ban very long. I mean, we just have to find out what's happening. Hmm. Hmm. So now it's a ban with exceptions, where before it was complete and total. Wow. That, but this is every issue. You have this. You have this. Is how he works. His his self funding is kind of you know. I'm waiting for the wall. We've heard some reports that he's told other entities like the New York Times. I mm-hmm. believe it was. They had the interview that the uh, the audio will it be released was a, a concern at one point. He talked in that meeting how the wall really isn't a thing. It's more of a talking point. And and now he's like, no, no, no. You know. So, so that's even out there. It's like how many of these issues that right. he ran on. That he was tough and he's standing up and he's telling it like it is. Is he going to have to roll back as he walks in to but talk to the GOP do you know, today? Did, did you hear who he wants to appoint to be over this? Rudy. It's Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani, right? He's, he's well, well-versed in this. Lots of experience. He's good Muslims, dealing apparently. with – But one of the things – but I think that's the way Donald Trump should proceed is taking every one of these slippery issues and then handing them off – to a, a named person like a Rudy Giuliani that people believe in as a guy that knows how to create a secure place. Right. And then get out of the way and shut your mouth and turn off your Twitter feed. No, no that won't happen. If that would happen. <laughs> He's addicted. Because he could, he could start handing these things over like the economy and hand it over to these experts and build this really strong team. And then it, Trump doesn't look so mercurial. Right. He is looking like a politician, though. Yeah. Where oh, you, you, you run huge. for office, yeah. you, you push a bunch of stories, a bunch of ideas, things that you're, this is what we're going to do, and then you come back to reality. Like, I don't know, someone who said he was going to shut down Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Right? right? And then once he got into office, he realized, oh, wait, we have all these people that nobody wants. What are we going to do with Guantanamo Bay? We don't want him here. Like, he goes, we'll put him in that supermax prison in Colorado. And Colorado's like, not in my backyard. What are you talking about? <laughs> we and don't need them so here. Then you start negotiating with other countries, and they're like, we don't want that. Yeah, right. We don't want these people. So they have these people that are kind of in limbo. Mm-hmm. And so they left him there. Did you? So, oh. and, and still, Guantanamo's still there. So, By the way, part of that story, I've got to find the uh, the person for the story for CNN, but CNN also uh, – Donald Trump is not new to politics. No. Did you know that when George Bush – the first George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush – George Bush, the dad. Was choosing a vice presidential candidate. No. Donald Trump lobbied him to be the vice president. Do you lobby for the vice president? Donald Trump does. Okay. He lobbied hmm. to be Dan Quell's position. <laughs> so okay. he's not new to politics. No. He's been wanting this for a long time. And now he's meeting with Paul Ryan on the Hill to at, close the deal. And at some point, Mitch McConnell. And at some point, nobody talks about who, Mitch. Who said he will vote for whoever the, the right. candidate is. Oh, he's never said crazy. Trump. But he really does need to sell. He needs to go in there and... And exercise the art of the deal and make this thing happen. It's got to do it. 
You got to unite that GOP party. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney's still out there pounding away like, what about your taxes? That the, Obviously, obviously there's something you're hiding. So he'll keep pounding that uh, drum. Crazy stuff. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we want to, we're going to replay an, uh, an interview we did with Scott Sanders about the working class poor. And why we bring it up? Because so many people are pushing for, you know, minimum wage. And, you know, a lot of people just have an immediate gut feeling about that that they don't like. We wanted to inform you, let you understand what's going on with a lot of the people, okay, in this country, the working class poor. That's up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe that if you just, you know, anybody in the world, anybody in the country, if they just put their head down and start working and just work and work and work, do you believe you could dig yourself out of the hole? So let's say you uh, come to this country, you, uh, you let's even say you're legal, everything's good, all your papers are up, you're good to go, but you're poor, you're in poverty. Do you think if we just started working... You're, it's just going to happen. You're just going to naturally float to the top. Is that the case? Because according to some of the latest research on uh, the poor, uh, it's not quite that simple. And th- this uh, this topic we're going to be getting into, it's, it's a big, big deal, especially in this upcoming p- uh, presidential race. Did you know that last, as of last year, 16 million children were on food stamps? According to the U.S. Census... That is the highest number since the economic tumble in 2008. According to the Agricultural Department, about 46.5 million people received food stamps last year. And according to new studies by sociologists here at BYU and Cornell and LSU, the majority of United States poor aren't jobless. They're, they're just, you know, bumming around. They're looking, they're working at low-paying jobs. They're, they're doing their best. They're just not able to get ahead, but they're in low-paying jobs, and they can't even support them their families. Dr. Scott Sanders is joining us. He's an assistant professor of sociology at BYU. He co-authored the study, Work and Occupations. He joins us now live to help us understand better the, the working class poor. Scott, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me. I mean, we just think of – I mean, we hear it, and we hear it on talk radio all day. The poor just need to – you know, quit begging for money and get working. But you're you're saying in your study and your research they are working. Yeah, that's right. Um, this th- this is one thing I really liked about starting this project on working poverty is, uh, you know, I teach classes too on poverty, and, and the, the typical perspective people have on poverty is a panhandler standing yeah, on the side exactly. of the road. Will work for food, and inevitably you hear stories hear stories about well, I know so and so, and all they ever did was just milk mm-hmm. the system. They never worked. But what we found in this research, we're looking at working poverty. And and it's a little more complicated. We've tried to, to flush out how that gets measured and to find the best way of measuring it. Uh, but what we found is most of the people who – the majority of people who are living below the poverty line. And the poverty line in the United States roughly is 24000 for a family oh. of four. So we're not yeah. talking extravagance. Right, right. right. But most of the people ha- have a job and are working. And so a better – 
picture of poverty, instead of thinking about the man on, or, you know, a panhandler yeah. side road, we'll work for food. A better image of poverty is the person who took your order at a fast food store or that mm. checked you at a grocery store. Yeah. That's what American poverty looks like today. And we don't. Most of us don't experience that because when we were working at a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, we may have been a 17-year-old kid. The rest of us, I mean, it seems like we just have been handed a better opportunity. If, if, if somebody's gone to college, that very idea is going to dramatically improve their ability to get out of poverty, isn't it? Yeah. Or is that still real? Well, that's and that's that's part of uh, what I think is really interesting about this and some other research I've been doing on looking at poverty is is the American dream still is it real? Reality, yeah, right. So for for myself, you know, my parents came from very small towns, were able to work they their way up. I benefited from that. I'm hoping my kids work on it. So there's this intergenerational exchange mm-hmm. and, and improvement. And the reality of can somebody from a small town with poor families and a poor background, can they still climb them their way out and make something of themselves? That that's begs the question. That's a question you know that's that's uh, you know a lot of researchers are looking at. And with this working poverty research, what we found is it's not looking that way. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are, are trying. They're they're doing their best, and they just can't provide enough for their families. Is it? And then this gets into the big discussion what we were having over minimum wage. Is it? Is it that we're not paying those jobs enough? Is it that they need more training? Do they, I mean, would it be a better investment that we train these people to get them out? Or is it a better investment that we just pay them more? to stay where they are. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I get that a lot. And I think one of the things we need to look at is some of the assumptions. So to, just real quick, working poverty means you are – we looked at the working ages, so 18, 16, 5. So okay. we're not looking at those teenagers right, that, are, right. that are you know, like when you and I were, you and I were awful jobs burgers, when right. we were te- teenagers. 18, 65. Uh, then we ran uh, – then you need to pick uh, – are you going to look at it ahead of household measure or a whole family, mm-hmm. everyone pooling the money together, and then what poverty line you're going to use? Okay. And we did 126 different measures to try to say here's everything possible out there. Wow. What can we call working poverty? And based on what assumptions you're going to be making changes what policy you want to do. Okay. And that's kind of one of the things why this that's paper – That's the gamesmanship of politics though, right? Exactly. So everyone's using different numbers. Oh, and that's, that's the thing. You know, that's got to drive you crazy. It drives me nuts. I hate like presidential elections <laughs> yeah. where they say, well, my, you know, my statistic says it's X and yeah. we need to do – therefore, oh. we need to have this policy. And then the other person says, no, no, we found it's Y that's and right. so we need this policy. That's right. But to show you some – to get back to your question about minimum wage and how this might help working poverty – if, if you decide to use uh, a poverty measure where you're looking at heads of household, so we're trying to say we want to create a s- system where an individual can go out there, get a job, and provide for their family. And, and that's – if we're using that measure of, of working poverty, we're finding um, a lot of people, millions of people um, are still in working poverty. If you're looking at individuals, you may want to look at working at, at minimum wage. Okay. Now, I'm not a labor economist. Yeah. You can discuss whether that's going to create jobs or take jobs. We actually away. have one coming on, I think, tomorrow. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. they would know more than I would yeah. about that. But but it would. There's an ethical issue. So there's an ethical issue to that. Do we believe the American dream, where an individual can go out and and um, provide for family. If we want that to be there, then maybe it's more than just an economic issue. Right. Maybe there's an ethical issue with yeah. it. If we're going to measure pet mo- working poverty looking at a whole household that we say, well, we think every able-bodied person 18 through 65 should be out there contributing to the, the welfare of the family, then we're pushing and promoting a dual dual spouse yeah, that's right. employment. So, so it's then household to, income. Then we need to start thinking about child care subsidies. True. And so you can see just how, you know, again, 126 different measures, yeah. changing subtle things will drastically change 
what kind of policy you want to implement. Well, and honestly, who's even – I mean go state by state, city by city, country – or uh, government by government. Who's – we're not even on the same page. Yeah. We don't even know. It just kind of depends what city you're in too, right? I mean – and it depends what the federal government's going to push and who's the president this year. And I mean it's – it's so up in the night. It seems like – this is why you made a really good point off air. This is why Bernie Sanders is starting to gain some traction yeah. because he's sitting there talking about the disparity of incomes and the, the lower the, – the lower producers, the poorer, the poorer are getting poorer. Yeah. They're not digging out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think um, that's, that's where I think it's fascinating looking at that Bernie, track, Bernie yeah. Sanders traction is because I think he's, try, he's starting to reveal – what this paper and some other research I've been looking at on on poverty is starting to show that that uh, American poor is a different picture than mm-hmm. what it was recently. And you're right, like the varies. We have federal programs, we have state programs, city programs, and so people get are getting help in different ways. But but we're we're hesitant. You know, I still hear that a lot. This 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 culture of entitlement. Yeah. That there's these people are just deadbeats and right. don't want to work. But that's not the case. And and you know and uh, some politicians are starting to shine that light, saying, "Is the American dream a reality anymore?" And and I, if I'm being honest, I'm a little pessimistic. Well, right yeah. Now. If that, you look that, at your data, yeah, right? you know, like I can and and it's you know it's sad. I've gone and done research in in uh, you know different little towns all throughout the United States. Mm. And there's some areas I just think like the statistically speaking, the likelihood of a kid coming out of here and, and really making it is low. Is that inner city or is that just smaller town America? That's both. Is it I'm really? more of a, I, I do more work more in rural, rural areas. Do you really? Um, but that's both. Because we, we would assume the inner cities that they're harder to come out of. There's a lot of other oppressive you know conditions and situations. But you're also saying just rural middle America. It's yeah. Because if, if, if you're not educated – you're not coming out of it. Well, it's it's if you think about it, there's different problems, right? So inner city problems are different than rural problems. Right. So if we think about what it takes for someone to get ahead these days, right? We usually just push this education. You need yeah. to get a good education, get a good job. Think about how difficult it is now to get into a good good college. Oh, you right. Know, like the kids are, you know. Um, uh, I, I knew people at grad school that their younger brothers and sisters were starting to take, you know, testing. Uh, getting a, a tutored on tests starting oh. in like seventh grade. No, yeah, high school students getting college credit. Yeah, but that's that's only a select few. Exactly, exactly. That, that their parents know. I know I need to uh-huh. push this for my child. I know this is important. That my school has the availability for yeah. it. So some of these more rural areas, they don't have the the, the ties, right, or right. The, the understanding of this is how you play the system to get to where you need to be. Uh, and so some of the rural areas you get you get trapped that way. Plus um, you don't have jobs. You don't have jobs. Yeah, I remember we I did a project uh in grad school in upstate New York looking at brain drain, the idea of why young people leave their small towns. Yeah. And a lot of uh post industrial decay in upstate New York. And we were uh, yeah. talking to kids and they were like, Yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping to be able to get a job at the local you know, it was Home Depot. Because uh. like really you know, realistically that factory shut down, that factory shut sure. down. I don't want to do the military and I already messed up and I only have like a B average, so I know I can't get into a good school. So, so that, brain drain. The people that can leave, leave. those that can't yeah. stay. stay. But, if, but if the economy drops, if business drops, if factories close, it yeah. just shrinks. So that's the issue facing rural America right Interesting. now is, is that, is that, that's, that, that, that the loss of 
of, of human capital of, of the smart ones leaving the town and then economies being you know consolidated yeah. outside of some of these small areas. Well, and, and then that's what I really want to blow up is this idea that they're, they're just not working hard enough. So I mean a lot of this is just opportunity. It's the, the opportunity's not there. The, the, the situations are right. Sure, if you were super driven and uh, had this incredible drive, you could probably find a way to leave, go bootstrap it, and make something happen. Yeah. But that's not the majority of people. Yeah, that's true, and that's that's something that's you know I hear a lot. I'll hear people saying. On the one side, well, I know this family that was deadbeat. Yeah. Or I'll hold the other side where it's like, well, I knew somebody who was, yeah. who was, you know, like raised by squirrels in the park <laughs> and then ended up getting a PhD at Harvard right. and now is a Nobel laureate. Yeah. You know, some other extreme case. And, you know, the reality is that those are extremes. They are. But for the average American, for the most of the people who, who we're talking about here, the bulk of America, that that's they're not in those extremes. And it's so, so the, we're, we, we don't have the same kind of opportunities. You know, I mentioned to you off air that after I graduated from uh, from undergraduate, uh, my wife started her graduate school, and so I moved out with her. And the only job I could find was was at a, a, a Home Depot, yeah, a college degree guy in New York, yeah, upstate New York, upstate New York. I had good grades, good good <laughs> scores. Uh, the only job I could get was uh, operating a forklift because I got uh, my part time job as a, as an undergrad. I got certified as a forklift operator. Well, are you serious? Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what was your undergrad degree in? Uh, it was pol- Political science, international Well, so you, check this out, Scott. So you stole the job from five other guys that didn't have degrees. Yeah. I mean that's really what's happening is you, there's no other job in upstate New York at the time because yeah. things weren't booming. Yeah. So you had to go get the forklift job and the, you got the license. But the 10 guys that were from the small towns around Ithaca or wherever, yeah, that was it, yeah. they were all like – they don't have anything, and they're like, "Yeah, these smart kids, you know, get their degrees and they come here." Yeah, that, I mean, that was the reality. And some, you know, in Ithaca, it was a, sm- a saturated community because of the it's, university. It's but. a big deal. Again, we're talking with Professor Scott Sanders, who's a so- assistant professor here at, uh, of sociology at Brigham Young University. He got his master's and PhD from Cornell, and then he did some research with um, some a guy from Cornell and one from LSU. What were their names? Brian Thede is. Uh, Assistant professor down at LSU, and Dan Lichter is the uh, professor at Cornell. It's good stuff. We're talking about the American dream, folks. Is it still alive, or, or isn't it? We're we're also getting into the latest research by Dr. Scott Sanders on America's working class poor. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Continue this discussion, but you be thinking about it. Do you feel the dream is still alive? We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show right here and. Uh, Love to hear your comments on this subject. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, the American dream, is it still alive or is it now just, you know, an illusion? Well, for a huge percentage of the population, it's it's probably becoming less and less of a real opportunity. Uh, today we're joined by Professor Scott Sanders, who's a professor of sociology, assistant professor of sociology here at Brigham Young University. He's uh, written 
a really, I think, incredible study and was a member of a team that put together this study on the working class poor. And the working class poor uh, would be those people, Scott, that – uh, they're they're actually working. So the majority of the poor, I guess some of the numbers I saw, there's roughly about 46.5 million people who received food stamps. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're obviously poor. What what are the numbers of those seen as poor, living below the poverty line? Yeah, that's about right. About, about 46, 46 million. million. Yeah. But you're saying about 26 million of those are working class poor. About 24 million. Yeah. 24 if million. You, if you took a if you take a, a definition of that, they're um, part of a household where um, the head of household is working at least part time or more. Yeah. Then, tw- then you have about 24 million uh, men, William, men, William, men, women, and children yeah. living in poverty. So, like we talked before, that's below twenty four thousand dollars a year for a family of four. I mean, if you're a mom with three kids, you and how do you work full time with three kids? Without, I mean, I guess we then throw our kids in daycare, yeah. which is going to cost unless it's subsidized. Which, I mean. How on earth do you dig out? You just can't dig out if you're a single mom. And yeah. I'm assuming a lot of the poor are single women. Yeah, that's and that's what we found is that, that women are more likely to be working poor than mm-hmm. than men. And, and that's part of part of the problem of when we're addressing this. What do we want to put priorities on? What policies do we want to do? Now we can now we can enumerate yeah. it. How do we help them? And if we think look back at the '96 welfare reforms, that was one of the problems where we had this mentality of. Oh, the poor just need a job. Right. Let's just get them a job. Get them They'll work their way out of, uh-huh. of welfare. And what ended up happening is, is that you know it did help people get jobs. But what we had is there's all these single mothers that then have this dilemma of what do I do with my children? Oh yeah, because I'm either going to spend most of my paycheck in, in childcare. Yeah. Oh, and then my and they're going to be raised by someone else. So I may as well be home. Or may as well be home. So that's the dilemma. That's the ethical issue we're we're presenting to people. Do you want to spend all your money so your kid can be in childcare? Or or be on on food stamps, and so yeah. that's it's we're not setting up very positive options no. for people, and we're almost forcing it has to be dual income. So mm-hmm. now we are forcing couples that everyone has to work to get out. Where it, some families might feel it's better that only one of the f- members, one, one parent works while the other takes care of the family. Yeah, and that's that's where you know we talk about in the paper that this is this is beyond just an economic. This is an ethical issue when yeah. we're talking about working poor. And so when you have questions like you mentioned before about you know what should we do about minimum wage? Well, that's a strictly eth- economic issue. Yeah. If we ethically believe that we should think that uh, a household should be su- should be supported by one person, then we need to say, well, then we need to make it sure that there's jobs out there. Then if, you need yeah. Then you need jobs and better. Pay. Yeah, so I, you know, I've talked to colleagues who do more family research than I do. I, I do more just kind of mm-hmm. poverty, but colleagues, you know, we, when we've talked about these results and some of their own research, one of the, the ways we're undermining the families economically, we're not oh, yeah. presenting. Not first of all, we don't have a, a system out there where people can really work their way out of poverty anymore. Right. But then we're penalizing families too because we're saying you can't make it anymore, and so both of you have to go out and work, and the kids have to go in child uh, uh, into daycare somewhere. And that's true. And that's that's what we're setting up for the American family right well, now. Well, and it's maddening because we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. One at one stage we're saying there shouldn't be a minimum minimum wage simply because you know we're pro business, mm-hmm. and at the other side we're saying we're pro family. And we want to be able to have the family, you know, maybe be a, a single income earner, but they, you can't have both. You, you can't pretend to want minimum, not want minimum wage, and not want the, the the salaries to go up, while simultaneously saying 
we want to support family. At some point, you're choosing one or the other. Exactly. Sometimes those ethical, moral issues don't line up with that. And that's huge as we're thinking about presidential candidates because they're going to be – everyone's going to be pro-family. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to sit there and say, I hate families. Yeah. I want them destroyed. <laughs> but our policies make or break that. Yeah. And it's hard because, you know, you, I mean, a lot of people would say, just when you just hear the rhetoric that goes on in talk radio and with all, with our politicians, we hear all the time they're so pro family. But look at their, look at what they're saying. Yeah. If they're not supporting family uh, policies, like making it so that you don't have to, so you have the choice of having one parent stay at home and that we could pull out of this hole. Then, um, if they're not if they're not showing the policy, then think deeper. Yeah, I hear that. You know, this is this is my personal view of things, but I see this a lot where I'll see people saying we want pro family. You know, everyone again, everyone's going to say pro family. Sure. Um, but but what, what if you had to rank what they actually are saying? They're saying pro business, then pro family, uh-huh, and exactly. those don't always match up. And That's so right. we, we need to be careful when we're or, thinking. Or about they might not say on the other side pro government, yeah. or pro family. And sometimes yeah. we think if you're pro government, you're pro family. But yeah. you're not either. Yeah. It's like – so you can't be pro-business or pro-government. You have to be pro-family first and then create policies that, that are structured right. Yeah, and that's, that's – like some of this research like this one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got another paper with the, my, my co-author Dan Lichter from um, Cornell and our colleague Ken Johnson at uh, University of New Hampshire where we're looking at infant poverty. And the reality mm-hmm. is is there's policies that are made and then it finally affects American people. And these these pay, this study here and this other one on infant poverty, that's where we see what's actually happening. What is the snapshot of American life? Yeah. And so we can have yeah. these we can have these new pundits and we can have politicians saying their sound bites that sound nice and pro-America and pro-freedom. But when we really see what the, the numbers are telling us, the, the you know from the census, this is you know this, we didn't make these numbers up. These yeah. are, you know, good numbers that the, the census and other um, you know agencies have collected. We get a different picture of what America looks like, particularly post recession. The, yeah. the, the lower classes just haven't recovered, and that poverty, the opportunity to improve, uh, just is, is is going away. And that's where we see this rise of working poverty, um, where it hasn't been as as, well, as large a percentage of the poor as it has in the past. Yeah, and you you hear you hear t- talk about jobs and the, the employment rate. None of us really know what the real employment rate is because it's depending on what you're counting. Mm-hmm. But this also makes sense as to why many people might have just dropped out of the rate of the job market simply because if you're poor, you've got to decide, am I going to go make money to pay for my child care or am I going to not work? And if I'm not going to – I mean it might just be easier to not work. Yeah. I mean really because other than – or work part-time. Yeah. And yet – and then others will cry, why aren't you working full-time? You could work full-time. And then, but we don't understand the complexity. We always think just cause-effect. But in sociology, it's multiple causes, oh, yeah. multiple effects. Yeah. This is highly complex it, systems. It's really, really complex. And, and that's, that's the reality. I mean, if, I, mean I, I don't want to put my life in the same life as um, you know, some of these working poor because I'm, oh. I'm in a different boat. But yeah. my wife uh, is, has a PhD too and we had to sit down and figure out was it worth her – Continuing her career because of the cost of childcare, yeah. was it worth it for what we wanted to do as a family? And we had the luxury of sit back and saying, "Well, mm-hmm. we could at least live off of my salary." Yeah, you know. And and uh, but the reality is, a lot of Americans don't have that luxury. Yeah, it's it's like, well, do we do we not make it and hope that food stamps and some of these other programs can make up the difference, or do you try to go out too? And then we try to figure out what childcare costs will be because that eats up so much of an income. Uh. It's it really is kind of um, disheartening when we, we think yeah. About it. If you put yourself in their shoes 
let alone like you believed you could get a PhD. Yeah. And your wife believed that. Yeah. I was the first in my family to get, I think, a master's and a PhD, but I didn't believe I could yeah. until people kept telling me I could. I, I and we came from uh, a single parent home, so we were, I guess, we were never probably below the poverty line, but we were we were above it. We were doing okay, but it was my mom working hard and my dad. And but in the end, I had no idea I could educate my way out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's funny now, though. I guess I was the, one of that small percentage. But I, my kids, by golly, I tell them every day, yeah. you, you, this isn't going to happen easily, and. You need education and yet you have to believe you can do it and you have to have almost a track record of doing it. Yeah, and that's part of you know the trick of, of this poverty too uh, is understanding – let's say we'll stick with the kids. Yeah. Understanding, well, uh, what classes do I need to take in high school mm. to get ready for a college? How do I apply for college? How do I apply for financial support? Yeah. Uh, how do I pick a major? How do – you know the little tricks that you're supposed to go talk to the professor in their office yeah. to get to know no, them. Right, like, exactly. I didn't know that until grad no. school, right? You're but, supposed to have study skills. Yeah. All these, exactly. all these things that that aren't necessarily there. And that's where we talk about some of these these penalties for the poor is that this isn't this is something that's not known. Yeah. And so it's not passed on to the kids. And so that the ability to be able to work yourself out uh, is is even that much more difficult because you don't have some of these 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 this this knowledge that can be passed on from generation. Yeah, to we generation. keep the poor poor. Just and, and it's by knowledge that it's not even. What's the name for that type of knowledge? It's not even tangible. It's just. It's just learned. It's just it, it's not it's not like sitting in a class. Yeah. It's like you should just know that you need to go check on your grades. Yeah. Well, it, uh, my wife was the first in her family to graduate from college, and just that you know she had a mm. you know it's like a, she had to break down all these things. Well, that's not how you do it, and miss out on yeah. certain opportunities. And then her, she's you know one of the older of a big family, so she was able to tell she's all her tutoring, younger siblings, yeah. "This is how you do it. This is what you do." And so they've all been able to be more successful because they don't have the same kind of barriers. But if you Think about yeah. if you think about that. Like, how do you? How do I have a career? You know, how do you do business? Uh, these things aren't necessarily passed down. Right. You know, it's, there's usually an environment people are around, and they 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 learn some some tricks of the trade that aren't in a pamphlet, yeah. aren't in a classroom, nope. and those, those can make a difference. And it's I think so I think true. when we look at inequality, where we're seeing that this this growing inequality in the United States, it's this accumulation of that is that we we're seeing some it's people subtle information. Some people have been doing this for generations. Yeah. Their parents have been educated. And and so they know how to do it and get their kids into school. Which why wouldn't you? I'm no, not right. trying to belittle. No, everybody that. would. No, everyone's going to try to do sense. that. That makes sense. Yeah. But there's a growing population that don't know how to don't know the value of education, don't know how to pursue it, don't know how to get good jobs, and so that's where we're seeing this increase mm. in the bottom. Percentage and you're only a generation away from that, right? You're you're yeah. you're one generation that that like you could be you could come from a family that's well educated well integrated the other thing is once you're in that you're in the system mm-hmm. you're in the network yeah. and the networks can help you stay in the networks yeah. once you fall out of the network and the education one generation you you could lose your entire fa- family you i mean yeah. everybody all of your all of your kids, your grandkids could just fall into this routine of not thinking they can go to college. Yeah, and I guess you know the positive side of that is that it could be also the other way. Exactly. That it can flip but it, it. But it is but it isn't quick. Uh-uh. Right. And that's something we that you know when we talk about development and poverty reduction, it's never a no. quick thing. It's gonna be we're gonna make a change and then hopefully the next generation will benefit mm-hmm. from those. Well then you bring in immigration. So then we have more immigration coming in. And then they might fall below the poverty line and then we're wondering why there's higher crime, why there's all these other things. I mean this is what I think is important to be thinking about is 
what do we want as a society? You keep bringing up, is it a moral issue? Is it, a, is it an economic policy? Mm-hmm. But it, we're the ones that vote. We're yeah. the, and even if you're just the middle class, quit assuming the poor don't care and they're lazy mm-hmm. and quit assuming the rich know. I mean the reality is is we're all in charge of this, aren't yeah. we? So we got to probably push our politicians a little harder and be informed. Like your study, what I love about it is it informs us. These people aren't lazy. A lot of them are just flat out trapped. Yeah. And they're digging, they're doing the best digging they can. But when you're digging at a low income job, you're not going to dig yourself out of this. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing if we're thinking about, you know, voting and being yeah. informed, one thing that that this study I think highlights is so we did 126 different measures of working poverty. Oh. If you can get from those different measures, you can have 2% of the population in working poverty all the way up to about 24%. So you can get huge Jeez. range. So think about what's the assumptions being made behind these things. Right. When when you hear these numbers, when you hear policies being made, what is it assuming? Is it like we talked about before, is it assuming single parent? Is it single right. dual parent incomes? And does that line up with what you feel is correct. There's Again, there's economic – what you view economically. There's moral issues. Right. And that's up to the individual to figure out how they want that's to pursue right. that. But to under, be educated, understanding what those the assumptions numbers aren't go what, into exactly. those numbers. That's the thing. And see that again, interestingly, that's an educational benefit. So you go get a PhD, you understand to yeah. not trust any number. Yeah. What, yeah. So what, what, what were the assumptions is how you started. What were the assumptions that led us to those numbers? Yeah. And we always have to t- check the assumptions and check who's saying it. I mean, depending on what station you're listening to or depending on what politician you're hearing, there's always going to be certain inherent assumptions. Yeah, and that's where they're they're usually correct. Yeah. But they're not going to tell you what your assumptions that's are. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so then you they need throw to, the number out yeah. there and everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So what would you suggest, Scott, as we wrap this up? As somebody that studies working class poor, what what should we we should number one be checking assumptions and becoming informed? What else should we make sure we remember when it comes to the poor and working class poor and also you know pulling up the 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 working poor yeah i think for me i think what i would say is give people the benefit of the doubt there are always going to be people out there who are going to milk the system oh, yeah. and we're not going to get rid of that so right. when you hear those stories yes that's true but 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 next time you're at a fast food store next time you're at uh checking out at the grocery store and look at the person that's helping you and remember that's probably what poverty is. Mm-hmm. That job, whether they're you know, just still the teenager, that job doesn't make enough to, to feed a family of no. four. And to remember that the most people out there are trying. And so we should give the benefit of the doubt. We should, we should be compassionate and maybe think about what we want our politicians to be thinking about and the view that they have of the poor. Yeah. To make sure our politicians that we vote for a way that is saying, I want the American dream to be here. I want that person at the the fast food place to be able to have a better future and their kids to have a better future. So, so give people the benefit of the doubt and remember that the, the, the face of poverty isn't the panhandler. Mm. It's, the, it's the person working the 95 yeah. uh, And odds are it's job. probably a mom yep. across the counter from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, she, and she's going home to three kids yeah. that are still struggling in school and she's – She's hoping she has enough to pay for food that day. Uh. Yeah. It's tough stuff. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. It's, it's seriously, I think, powerful insight. And um, folks, it's it's our life. It's it's ours. We get to we get to go be what we want to be. I would also just add that let's make sure that we're focusing on pro family candidates first, pro business second, pro government second, pro family first. And you would know that by ask them. Just go find out what do they believe in. How do they? What are their assumptions about how we grow a family? Does that do we grow a family by having everybody work 
do some people stay home? Can that can that be a male staying home or a female staying home? Let's go find out what our what our uh, what our leaders believe in and what they what their assumptions are. Great stuff, Professor Scott Stand- Sanders here from Brigham Young University. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Great lessons, I think, for all of us. Don't judge another person until you've walked a mile or a thousand miles in their shoes, right? We don't need to judge it. And yet it's so easy to just look down our noses at people that, oh, if they were just try harder. There was just a news story about a person going off, I think, at a Walmart on somebody that was using food stamps. And again, they may be buying stuff that's not healthy, but honestly, we don't understand what's going on with some people. And some people just aren't healthy anyway. I mean, think about uh, the the systems of our government are there to catch the people that that can't make it on their own and are struggling. And that could be because of mental health, because of just, you know, bills that have that have uh, overwhelmed them. It could be medical issues, health issues. So just be a good Samaritan and get out of the way and instead be a support. Uh, how many times have you ever seen somebody help somebody in a line and pay for their groceries? I had a, a guy that had forgotten his credit card. Um, I was two or three back in the line. And um, I could see this guy couldn't find his wallet. He couldn't – and he had like $10 worth of groceries and a baby in his hand. And the lady right in front of me just bought the groceries, just bought them. I like, and I'm, I thought, what an idiot, Matt. Why didn't you even think of that? I'm like, oh, come on. We got to wait for your – go get your wallet. Bought him. Problem solved. Well, yeah, but don't don't talk your way out of it. Just serve. Right? Ah, we just need more good Samaritans. Or let's just let the government do it. That's the government. We the people, right? We? Well, yeah, but I paid my taxes so that shouldn't – the guy should remember his wallet. doesn't work that way, folks. Life's more complicated. So when you see somebody that needs a hand, give them a hand. They don't need a lecture. They don't need anything but – a hand. Well, but if they would just focus and concentrate, they'd be able to pull themselves out. Not always. No. I'd love to put any anybody on the budget that some moms can can are on when they're trying to raise their family. Single mom, two or three kids, making $15 an hour. Let's put anybody on that budget. Love to see it. It's not going to happen. So instead, do a good turn. Be a good Samaritan. That's the lesson of hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We will take a break. Next hour, we're going to be talking about what really is the key to humans advancing. Is it just our brains? Or is it actually our ability and our culture and our ability to connect with multiple brains to create a mega brain? We'll talk about it. It's pretty interesting stuff. Stick with us. That's all up next on the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The, the show where we give you a leg up on this crazy thing called life. It's not easy, right? You know, we're not born with an owner's manual, so this is the show where we teach you what you need to know, the inside scoop, a little deeper cut that you might get in a normal news show. Because, you know, they've only got three minutes for a story. We'll give it a a more in-depth look, but really only the stories that you need to know for your life, for your family, your relationships, your job. The things that really matter most to you. Most of you, sure, you're worried about what's going on in Iraq. I get that. Except there's not a lot you can do about it. But you can do a lot about your own family, about your own, you know, friends, your relationships, your job. So we bring you that information. Today will be no different. This hour we will be talking with um, Dr. Joe Henrik about where the success of mankind has come from. Does it come from our incredible brain? Does it come from our rugged good looks? Some say it does for me. JK. Um, And or does it come from your culture? Because isn't it interesting that if I took the average male and I stuck you in the wilderness, you'd probably be dead in a month. Falling off a cliff. Dying of starvation, freezing to death. Could your mind not figure out a way to stay healthy? Do you think, Ben, if I put you out in the wilderness for one month, you'd survive? Well, my upbringing was by wolves, so, so I think I could do it. And No, you mean raccoons. Well, They weren't wolves. The, the wolves of they the They were city. raccoons. I mean, I saw the pictures. They were pretty cute, and, weren't they? And it wasn't in the wilderness. It was in a dumpster. Okay, well... Some raccoons would, in a dumpster. Some would say that is the wilderness, the wilderness no, of no, the no, city. No, 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 no. It was. It wasn't the wilderness of a city. It was. It was a city in a, a very a, a highly populated area with a dumpster, and you were in the dumpster, and the raccoons, and it was a McDonald's dumpster, so you always had food. So it was a really sketchy McDonald's, though. So well, sure. because of that, I think I'd be able to survive. Yeah, you'd be dead in a week. Not to be rude. <laughs> I don't mean that to be rude. You'd be dead. Think about it. But we've got these brains and everyone thinks it's, you know, it's the brain. It's our evolution of our brain that was the key. No, 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 no. Because we can make iPads, but you can't survive in the wilderness very well on your own. Well, and we can make iPads because somebody else created the computer. Because a cooperative of people sharing brains and inter- in, uh, understanding and insight and camaraderie and teamwork created something bigger than the human. It is the culture. It is the cooperation of human brains that creates the power. <laughs> and that's what we're going to be talking about, your culture. It might be culture that has enabled us to go and make these great advancements, not just man. Make sense? 
But men collectively create culture. That's what we'll be talking about in the next hour. Tons of fun there, plus a lot of other information. Some facts you don't even need to know. Like, for example, today is Nutty Fudge Day. Something I do not like. I'm not into nuts, not loving fudge. I'd rather have a Twinkie. With Cheetos squished in it. Health food. And Caitlin says, ooh, let's get to the news then and let Caitlin use her words in another way. Caitlin, what's going on in the headlines around the country? What else do we need to know? Well, there's no highlights on Twinkies, Matt. But for for today, presumptive GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump says he has no plans to release his tax returns before the general election. He said Tuesday that there's, quote, nothing to learn from them. For months, the reality TV personality has told the public that he's undergoing an audit and cannot release the documents. In an interview with the Associated Press, Trump also said for the first time that he won't take public funds for his campaign. He says, I don't like the idea of taking taxpayer money to run a campaign. I think it's inappropriate. House Speaker Paul Ryan, who is scheduled to meet with Donald Trump on Thursday, called 2016's election, quote, one of the most grueling primaries in modern history. Ryan said he doesn't intend to pretend that he supports Trump when he doesn't yet. Quote, he says... We have an obligation to merge and unify around our common principles, but clarified, I don't really know Trump. I've met him once, but we cannot afford to lose this election to Hillary Clinton. Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland did not respond to a question about his financial net worth when he filled out his nomination paperwork to the Senate on Tuesday. President Obama's previous picks, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, both provided the net worth statement in their documentation. Withholding the information could be a way to kickstart the confirmation process, prompting Republicans to seek more information. Even the 2016 presidential candidates' names aren't, un- aren't popular. Unlike presidential candidates of years past who inspired parents to name their kids after them, the New York Times reports the popularity of the names Hillary, Bernie, and Donald have actually declined rather than grown. In 2015, there were fewer baby names named after the current presidential candidates than in decades before. The trend of presidential candidate baby naming was particularly booming 60 years ago, with thousands more babies being called Franklin, Harry, and Dwight at the start of the Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower administrations. Hmm. And for your last update, Matt, students at Osceolo High School in Arkansas call call it a senior prank, but officials are calling it trashing the school. Mm-hmm. Osceolo Superintendent Michael Cox reported that 37 of 80 seniors broke into the school Sunday night through cereal in the hallways, spray-painted walls, and trashed classrooms. Ugh. Student Jamie Anderson says school officials also accuse seniors of leaving human excrement uh. on the floor and then release crickets to hop around the building. So those involved have been handed five-day suspensions, meaning they won't get to attend graduation on Friday. Criminal charges have also been filed. The students who didn't participate in the prank are considering boycotting their graduation ceremony, claiming that those involved do not deserve such a harsh punishment and should still be able to participate in graduation. Oh, brother. These kids nowadays. What do you think, Matt? I think don't let any of them graduate. At all? No. Why? Just for fun. No, I. Okay. You know what? That can be the teacher's prank. Great. Don't have graduation. Well, that's why you're not in charge. Honestly, have graduation for anybody that wants it. They've just saved a ton of money. I mean, seriously, graduations cost a lot of money. Yeah. So let's just not do it. I mean, your class, class of 2016, will go down in history as the class of the people that went in and created havoc and spray painted the building, and the other people that fought for their rights to do that. Do students have a right to do that? No. Sorry. And criminal charges, charge them and then book them and then tase them. Yikes. Tase it. (laughs) Tase them.
It's the answer to everything. I'm glad you are not in charge. If you had just tased him. You could probably never... sell a lot of tasers through that, by the way. Yeah. Now, what bugs me are the parents probably that are like, oh, Jerry was just there. He didn't do anything. Well, there was a couple of parents that talked about saying that they feel like their, their kids should just have to do – no community service, and that would be more than enough. Well, right, but again, but they should be able to graduate. You, the parents don't get to choose that. Your kids did what they did, so the school gets to do what they do. Once your kids crossed the line and broke into a building, even if they didn't do anything, they broke into the building. I don't know if they. Well, I just know they vandalized it. I don't know well, if it's a breaking and entering, but well, I'm assuming they didn't do it in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, but I guess the point is, you don't get to choose that, parents. Sorry. That's how it works. <laughs> Take that. Now, we won't tase them because I'm not there. But somebody. Tase it. Ow! <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> the sound of a taser in the morning. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. You are strange. Totally strange. Thank you, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Great news. Um, Donald Trump won't release his taxes. Until the until the until after the election, what does he think Hillary's going to be pounding on for how many months? And you know he'll come back with well, then you got to release your you got to release your transcripts of what you said in front of all those people, you know, in the financial district. But the reality is, I don't know. Should we vote for a guy if we don't know that he's going to be clean? Taxes are a sign of where you put your priorities. No, the, the IRS no is taxes, auditing no him. votes. So? And, and so he has to wait until the audit is complete. No, it's very simple. Go get, a, go get a group of 10 journalists from reputable places and let them go through his taxes. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I know. You don't have to release them. You can have an independent audit saying first the taxes off, are the first problem. Reputable journalist. Yeah, where do you find one? Come on, those. You could go get, because he has said repeatedly they're all liars. <laughs> you know what I mean? They all so are. even his supporters won't look at that as being something as important because the only people that you'd bring in is people that their candidate is already called liars. Right. What I would do is, I mean, as Paul Ryan, they, if I'm the GOP head, I I need to know: Are you clean? Yeah. Are you good? It's important. Is I mean, there anything that's going to come out of this that's going to make it like not good for any of us? Well, yeah, but I'm not going to release him. So, hmm, hmm, be like the first president in how many years to not release? Play. Uh, what is it here? Clip four. My husband and I have released 33 years of tax returns. So you got to ask yourself, why does he want to release him? It's a great question, Hillary. She's so funny. You got to ask yourself why. By the way, you got to ask yourself, Hillary, why aren't you releasing those transcripts? Because she said she would when everyone else does. Everyone else who? Everybody else. Who's that? Uh, apparently Bernie. Because <laughs> I don't think Trump has any. Yeah, Ber- Bernie. But, but maybe she she re, uh, readjusts her uh, claim because it's now a, a different uh, competitor, yeah, competition. She'll, to, she'll yeah. just say he releases his taxes. I release the Goldman Sachs transcripts. There you go. Yeah. The other problem is: are there actually transcripts to those 
speeches she gave. No, I think that was part of her contract is she wanted transcripts made. Okay. Which seems crazy. Yeah, why would you want evidence? Just let Come it go. on. Probably so that no one could say she said something that she didn't say. Okay. And now, and now no. people can say that she said something that she mm-hmm. did say. That's exactly <laughs> right. But again, Mitt Romney's not going to stop on the on the tax thing either. So he's going to pound the drum. Hillary's going to pound the drum. But will it matter? Should it matter? I mean, really, that's – to me, it's just Donald won't do anything that everyone else is doing. Yeah. And I get it. You, you know, you're the contrary candidate. But I don't know. I, I want to know he's clean. I want to know – I don't believe any of them are clean. No. I want to know that he's – I don't want someone who's going to get into office and then run into some legal fight because they did something on their taxes. You know, yeah. they, they need to be focused on the office of the president, not trying to defend themselves in court. Mm-hmm. And it really, honestly, a great way to know what you value is to follow your checkbook. Wherever you're spending your money shows you what you value. Yeah. I mean, if he's got $500,000 in spray tan on his taxes – that tells you something. As a write-off mm-hmm. for business? It's business. <laughs> I'm just doing it for my business. That's a big deal. You don't get this orange overnight. It takes work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you do? I mean, honestly, where does this go? Maybe we really should have just had Joe Biden be president. He still claims he, he, he would have been a great president. Right. His family issues, he said, were uh, were too much to, to take on yeah. top of running for president. So that's why he didn't run. Speaking of running, did you hear about those kids' shoes that are lighting cars yeah. on fire? Um, my son is currently wearing a pair. Well, that seems crazy. No, not at all. You, we used to worry about the hoverboards because they would just ignite and explode into fire. Right. But now it's those little kids' shoes that light up. Ben's got a pair. My kid, it's his favorite pair of shoes. Oh, you can't, yeah. And he runs around, they light up, and it has Jake and the Pirates on them. He thinks it's the greatest thing. And then we, uh, I'm rolling through, what was it? It was on Facebook, and they just had this huge image. And I go, remember that shoe? And she goes, yeah. And I go, and I, I scroll down, I go, apparently they're lighting on fire. And the problem, it's one shoe. Yeah. It was in a family's backseat of a car. In Houston. And there was nothing else back there, and then there was a fire. It's the shoe. And the shoe was was charred, they said. So it, there's no like – they're not saying – well, they're saying it. The family says it's the shoe. The problem is there's one incident. Nobody saw the shoe catch on fire. So was it the shoe? Was it something else? Is there some other situation maybe, at hand? Maybe the little kid you know, was playing with a lighter, stuck it in his shoe. I don't know. But but they're saying the kid wasn't wearing the shoes. So the payless, I guess, is who sells the shoes. They're they're taking them all off the shelf, which is sad because it's a cool shoe. It's a cool shoe until it explodes on your foot. One shoe. How many thousands have they sold? I don't know. My kid loves them, so we're not taking them off his foot. <laughs> is it that very pair? Yeah, it's the exact that shoe. Is so scary. I'm rolling up through Facebook and I go, "Oh, we just bought those." <laughs> your we son's bought, foot could just we break bought, into we fire. Them, we bought them like a year ago. Yeah, so that's about probably when he's it's gonna, about to break He's, he's going to be out of the shoe pretty soon, but yeah. he still likes it. Ben, are you going to wear your your shoes your, still? J- your Jake and the Pirate shoes? Well, I had to get them specially made, yeah. so it would be kind of a financial bad, yeah. he really financially likes, bad decision. He likes to, the Velcro. Yeah, that's a lot easier for him. Yeah, tying a shoe is kind of, kind the of a tough The dexterity thing, yeah. it's hard to get those shoes tied. Well, it takes me like an extra three minutes to tie yeah. my shoes. I like it because I can see you coming. Yeah. <laughs> like a mile away. 
I see you walking in and you can just – it's like a – yeah, it's like you're backing a truck up. Um, interesting. Well, sorry kids that your shoes might destroy your family's property and sorry, Ben, that you wasted so much money on a shoe. Still going to wear them. Still going to wear them. Can't talk him out of that. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the secret of our success as humans. What is the key? Is it just your brains or your culture? Well, a professor, Dr. Joe Henrik, will be joining us, uh, walking us through some of his research. Pretty interesting insight into uh, the advancement of the human race. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. So what separates the human race, the human species, from other animals We certainly aren't stronger, right? They can outrun us, many of them, faster or bigger uh, than most species that actually uh, could threaten us. Except, you know, we're smarter, right? We're smarter. Well, um, we'll find out. Our our next guest, Dr. Joe Henrik, is a uh, professor at uh, the Canada Research. He's the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Coevolution at the University of British Columbia. He also teaches economics and psychology there. He's a professor also of human evolutionary biology at Harvard and has written a book called The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Dr. Heinrich's here to, to teach us everything we need to know about uh, what really is the secret of our success. Dr. Henrik, thank you so much for being with us. Nice to be with you, Matt. It's, uh, it's, uh, to me, I, I was fascinated by um, your your thesis here. Talk about, okay, is it our brain that makes humans so successful that separates us from uh, the rest of the, the other animal kingdoms, or what is our key to success? Well, I think one way to kind of uh, throw the problem into stark relief is if you imagine a kind of game of survivor experiment in which we take, say, a bunch of Americans, you know, well-educated um, uh, adults experienced and uh, parachute them into the Aturi forest in Africa. And we also <laughs> parachute in a group of capuchin monkeys. And we then see who we come back a year later or two years later and see which team survived, the, the big-brained humans or the relatively <laughs> small-brained capuchin monkeys. And if your intuitions are like mine, you're probably bet on the monkeys. Yeah, it'd be a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, why why would that be? Well, the, the reason, it, there's, of course, lots of humans who have lived for millennia uh, in the Aturi forest, but that's because they depend on a large body of information that they acquire from previous generations, information about how to find food, make shelters, create medicines, detoxify plants, and, and hunt animals and do animal tracking. And the Americans we'd, we'd parachute in there wouldn't have had that knowledge bestowed on them by previous generations. So it really turns out our ability to survive in all the diverse uh, environments that humans have expanded on all over the planet comes from something about our ability to generate this cumulative know-how, which turns out to be rooted not in our individual intelligence or learning abilities, but in the fact that we attend to and learn from other people. And that creates this cultural evolutionary or cultural inheritance system that produces all this fancy stuff that we rely on. So the, the culture is the cumulative know-how. It's, it's the yeah. stored... 
wisdom, knowledge, understanding of our environment, our culture. I mean, our uh, yeah, our environment, our natural world. Yeah, the natural world, and it's stored. Where is culture stored? Just in yeah. So it's it's you should think of culture as information stored in our brains about how to make tools, about how to do rituals, about how to organize ourselves, stored in our brains that we then pass down from one generation to another. Now, we typically call it culture only when a, a certain group of people comes to share similar ideas, beliefs, and values or ways of doing things and have similar customs. Hmm. Is, is our culture uh, – I guess our culture is adaptive, right? So if we, if we had enough people in that forest, over time, if they were surviving, they would start to pass down the, the skills, the tools, uh, and the information to, to create survival. It would, yeah. it would evolve, right? Exactly. So that's one of the uh, big insights of the last 10 or 20 years is that from very young age, people don't just learn from anybody. They don't just learn from their parents, but rather they zoom in on members of their social world who are particularly successful, skilled, or doing things that lead to success and prestige. Hmm. They'll even use cues about who other people are paying attention to and learning from to zero in and target their learning. Now, at the individual level, this only makes a small difference, but at the aggregate group level over generations, this unconsciously, without anybody knowing it, accumulates practices that allow people to survive better and better adapt to their environments. Hmm. It's, uh, um, is culture inherent? Is it, just, is, it a, is it an intuitive, natural thing that we all just do naturally, or is it a, a taught thing? Well, culture so creation. The actual information that we're acquiring was being learned, but the the recent insights have suggested that we're evolved to be these kind of learners. That more than any other species, we look out into the world, into the other members of our social group, and preferentially learn from them. And one of the interesting things about that is we're so reliant on learning from other people that it'll even override our own intuitions, our own experiences, um, and even our own instincts. One of the examples I like about this is uh, people in hot climates eat a lot of chili peppers, and spices like chili peppers seem to be an adaptation for killing microbes that you find in meat. Hmm. Um, but other animals like chimpanzees and babies are very averse. They have innate aversions uh, to chili peppers. In fact, chili peppers probably evolved in order to create chemical toxins that keep uh, mammals away. But we're able to learn to like chili peppers by learning from other members of our social milieu in a way that allows us to solve a problem dealing with pathogens that, that accumulate in meat in hot climates. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Is it um, – as I, as I sit and think, uh, my kids today, uh, historically, the culture would be handed down almost tribally, right? And, right. And in, famili- in families, yeah, families and communities. Yeah. So we've been studying a lot of cultural learning in small-scale societies, so I do field work in Fiji. And people do learn from members of their household, but, you know, the kids are raised in, in mixed play groups. So the whole the village kids play together, and the old, younger ones learn from the older ones. So it's very much a community. It, t- it takes a village, as they say. Does, does this advancement of social media and technology, how, what does it do to our cultural milieu and change does it i mean it seems like now my children can be influenced by someone culturally that isn't even of my culture right so it it massively expands the kind of pool of people we can learn from now of course we can learn things uh through books and through through media um although there still seems to be a priority in our psychology for learning from people we can personally interact with and and be in the same room with so um, if you look at something like dialect, people still learn to speak the local 
uh, pronounce words in the local way the other members of their, uh, their community do, and, and not so much in the way that they might hear on TV. Um, but the, so it's kind of a mix uh, of how important these other, other sources of input are. Hmm. And then we take um, – we, we, I guess we take this collective culture and is there an inherent nature or natural way that we try to just constantly improve upon the culture? Or does a culture eventually just become kind of static and stays neutral? Well, I mean individuals themselves are, are making small modifications in lots of different ways. Um, the interesting thing is is that a lot of these things, a lot of these complex sets of practices are sufficiently complicated that individuals themselves have, would have a hard time improving on it, but they're still making small modifications through their own experience, through errors they make. Uh, but this just creates the variation to continue to improve things. Now, of course, certain things will get about as good as they can get for the environment. We see this sometimes with hunter-gatherer technology until something new comes in and spreads from, from some other group. Uh, and then one of the powerful drivers of all this is recombination. So the larger and more interconnected your groups are, the faster they're going to be able to uh, create adaptive cultural evolution, the faster this cumulative process is going to go. Hmm. What does the future of this look like? Well, um, I mean, because of this idea that the larger and more interconnected your populations are, the faster your adaptive evolution is, the faster technological evolution is, for example, it is good that the world's becoming more interconnected. So when we've seen in the past these various communication revolutions like reading and, and uh, the writing of letters and telephones and stuff, this all accelerates things. But now with the Internet, that it should uh, only exaggerate the, the speed of the evolution of all of um, this cultural body of know-how. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with uh, Dr. Joe Henrik, and he is walking us through his book, Secret of Our Success, um, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Interesting uh, research out of uh, the University of British Columbia and um, this great Dr. Joe Henrik. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Townsend Show. So what is the secret of our success as humans? Is it that brain that's just that incredibly strong brain? Or is it our culture that drives us and uh, and continues our evolution and and domesticates us as a species, even makes us smarter? Well, our guest, Dr. Joe uh, Henrik, is uh, arguing that it is our culture that is the key. He is a the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Co-Evolution at the University of British Columbia. He um, also is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard and has a new book, The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Dr. Henrik, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Is um, when you talk about this, the power of culture. It culture I, I, is a uh, it's a cooperative effort, right? It's a cooperative. It's the interaction between humans 
um, that shares education, shares information, shares, I guess, the norms, the, the mores of the culture. Um, what about if you if you're too individualistic? Does does this then start to break down if people aren't cooperating? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, processes I describe as self-domestication. So uh, once once humans could learn from each other, they could acquire rules. And not only could they acquire rules about how to behave, how you're supposed to do certain rituals, what you're supposed to believe in, um, how you should build your house, uh, but you can also acquire the standards for judging others. And this gives rise to social norms. If a group uh, begins to share the standards for judging others, then it, it compels others to go along with whatever it is the group wants to do. And then you can have competition amongst groups so that rules and uh, standards for judging others that lead to that group to be more successful, to spread, to have more babies, um, to overtake other groups, those begin to spread. And you get this interaction of genetic and cultural evolution that will favor people who go along with the rules. Um, because if you don't go along with the rules, people judge you, they ostracize you, they punish you, um, and you know the, the group gets rid of you. So this led to us being a lot, becoming a lot more domesticated than other species, being able to uh, go along with the group, being kind of groupish and inclined to to whatever the group wants. Mm. Does is there is there a downside to this? It seems like um, if the group is going against. Uh, maybe somebody's values or beliefs, but the group is more powerful than the group would just run over a, a, another person's values or beliefs. Well, yeah. I mean, so we're talking about a long-term yeah. uh Process. Uh, evolutionary process. And so, yeah, there were probably lots of individuals who had their own ideas and their own self-interest, but uh, they were compelled by the fact that the, they were being judged by others and they would get a bad reputation. They wouldn't be able to find mates, mm. uh, all those kinds of things yeah. to, to, to go along with the group. So this, this led us, this gave us the ability to curb our self, self-interest in order to go along with widely shared norms in a social group. Hmm. So whatever it is the customs are in the group, and of course at the ultimate level, at the, at the evolutionary way, we're going along because our ancestors got punished for, for violating these rules. Now, of course, at the proximate level, a lot of times we're, we're going along for the same reason, or we may have actually internalized these social norms so that we want to do them. And it just gives us a way of better navigating a world by internalizing the social rules and, and, and making them our own in hmm. a sense. And um, how many years does it take to see an evolutionary change? Well, the um, we're talking about things here that have been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. But recent studies of the human genome have given us a real sense of how quickly genetic evolutionary change can occur. So um, there's a, uh, many humans, well, 32% of humans, have a gene that allows them to process milk, uh, break down lactase sugars, into adulthood. The standard mammalian is, uh, system is that after weaning, you lose the ability to break down lactose sugars. But in a couple different populations, one in Europe and, and some in Africa, certain populations um, had a genetic change. And we actually know, you know what chromosome the, the change uh-huh. occurred and, and what it did, which allowed them to process milk into adulthood. And so that then spread to 32% of the global population in about 7,000 years. 7,000 years. So th- that, that's the best estimation we have of a genetic evolutionary change. Right. So that's a pretty, uh, uh, that's a very strong selection pressure. So uh, in the sort of, in the studies that exist so far, that's one of the most powerful and quickest. Wow. Um, 
changes we've seen. So think of that as an as a upper upper limit on how fast evolution can go, genetic evolution. So really, um, like we now seem to have this incre- this incredible flux of information systems and technology driving things, and we may not see evolutionarily what all this technology how how it will impact us evolutionarily for seven thousand more years. Right. So the, these things take a long time. Yeah. Um, now, one of the points I make in the book is that although you know the modern world is transforming in ways that will no doubt have big evolutionary consequences for where our genetic evolution goes, that's been the case in human evolutionary history for at least a million years. Hmm. So one of the interesting things about, about humans is that if you compare us to other primates and other mammals, our digestive tract... Uh, looks depauperate. So our stomachs are too small for a primate of our size, our colons are too short, we have these small teeth and, and small gapes. But all this makes sense when you realize that we've been processing food and particularly cooking food for probably over a million years, hmm. which you can think of processing food and cooking it, chopping it up, marinating it, all of these ways in which societies have long processed food as a kind of external digestion. So we're breaking things down before we actually consume it, and that meant natural selection could stop investing so much in fancy digestive tissues like stomachs and colons and invest more in our brains. Um, so in this case, the uh, cultural technology, how to cook and process food, has shaped our, our physiology. That is fascinating. What else do we need? How else is this going to impact us? And, and from your learning and more and domestication of humans, and um, what do you see happening in the future? Or what else do we need to understand from your book? Well, I mean, if you're looking ahead, uh, you know, many of these things depend on, you know, whether current trends continue and how fast um, existing technologies spread. But one thing that is interesting to think about is the rates of cesarean sections have been increasing uh, dramatically across the world. And this means that that babies who otherwise had a head too large to make it out of the womb uh, can now be born. Hmm. And... There's, it's widely thought that there's, um, that there's a constraint on the ability of infants' heads to grow prior to birth because of the size of, the, of a woman's birth canal. And this actually may have constrained a selection pressure for us to have bigger brains that were better able to acquire cultural information and store all the know-how we need. But if culture allows us to, to get around that problem, as cesarean sections do, that may release the selection pressure and lead to humans with larger brains wow. and, and bigger heads that otherwise, and then eventually cesarean sections will be requisite because uh, most babies, I mean, you know, obviously we're looking way into the future. Right. And um, it depends on current trends continuing, but that's one interesting thing to think about. Well, and that's also why you'd want to invest in, in larger hat companies that produce <laughs> larger hats. Yeah, although it might be a bit premature. To, to, that's true. You know, Don't do it for about 6,000 years. Then start investing. You know, that is fascinating. Um, what, does, what does this do? I, and I guess, uh, so morality then would have also evolved, you're saying, through like domestication. Well, yeah. So, um, so would, will, will we become a more moral people? Yeah, so one of the things, the arguments that I make in the book is the way to think about, I mean, moral is a kind of loaded term. Yeah, it so is. Let me, let me reframe things a little bit, is that um, different societies are going to have different social norms. And some of those social norms are going to be about, say, sharing food or group cooperation or working together in house building or, say, working together and raiding other groups and driving them out of territory. Competition amongst groups is going to favor those social norms which best allow groups to, to do that. Um, and so 
a lot of the evolution of how we treat others is going to be driven by this competition among groups and those with the, the, the social norms that allow you to best compete with other groups are going to spread at the expense of those that don't. Mm. One of the fun um, sort of cultural technologies that I discuss in the book and it's now been widely studied are ritual practices. So when people in communities do rituals, so they move in sync and they sing in sync and they do all the things that we think of as the modern components of ritual, it actually gives them a sense of solidarity. It binds them together. Um, and sometimes it makes people think of themselves as a single group. And experiments done by psychologists show that this actually makes people more cooperative. And you can actually see in the spread of hunter-gatherer groups in Australia that the groups with more powerful rituals that better would bind the group together and build links between different groups were spreading at the expense of groups who didn't have those kinds hmm. of rituals. So rituals could uh, – they, they, uh, they strengthen solidarity. They strengthen uh, community. Right. And, and, then, and therefore are, are – promoted more and last right. more and enduring. So then they spread, and this is one of the reasons why you know, many, so many human societies have rituals of some type or another mm -hmm. that um, you know, have many of the same elements, yeah. because they're tapping aspects of our evolved psychology that help, help us kind of be more groupish. Yeah, that's powerful. And um, what would you, how does this change your life, uh, Joe, when you, as a, just as a person, a human, what, what, what do you think of? What excites you about what you're learning? Well, one of the uh, things, like, if you're interested in being creative and um, developing new ideas, one of the things the collective brain points you towards is the importance of uh, interacting with people with diverse expertise who know lots of stuff about that, that you don't know about. Because it's through the recombination of different ideas that we're able to, to come up with new ideas and develop new ways of thinking. So focusing on recombination through building diverse social networks um, is something that, 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 that I think about that comes out of this work that I try to use in my own life. Yeah, that's powerful because then ideas that probably have not spent much time together can start to, to coalesce and right. grow. Right, and create new things. That's powerful. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Joe Henrik, thank you so much uh, for your insight. Um, and again, the book is The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter by uh, Dr. Joseph Henrik. Thanks again, Joe. Okay, thanks, Matt. Great stuff. Uh, wow. Our heads are going to get bigger. That is crazy. I mean, the, in 7,000 years. But then we have the Zika virus that's going to make them smaller. <laughs> Don't so. worry about that. We will fix that. That is fascinating. Man, people are just smart. Cool. Welcome to Earth, folks. Welcome to Earth. 7,000 years to see a genetic change, an evolutionary genetic change. Minimum. Fast. Crazy. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. With more coverage of BYU sports than anyone else, we're now giving you more ways to listen than anyone else. Tune in to Sirius XM Channel 143, stream us live at BYUradio.org, or take us wherever you go with our new Droid and iOS mobile apps. And keep up to date with all things sports by following us on Twitter at BYU Radio. Bleeding Blue has never been so easy. Follow the Cougars on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So don't freak out. Sure, in 7,000 years, everyone's head will be huge. Don't worry about it. All the people right now with big heads are like, yes, I knew it. So I'm I'm more evolutionary advanced. Yeah, you are. Than others. Yeah. Than, say, Ben. Ben. little. You mean little head Ben? Little head Ben. <laughs> yeah. My head is not that small. What's so funny is we, you know, people would laugh at people with big heads, except evolutionarily, these are the these are the early adopters. These are the people that have adopted early the idea of a big well, head. Unless they have a small brain. Yeah. Because you can have a big head and small brain. I don't know if you can. Really? Yeah. Because there's not is, a is lot. Is it more to that the you're, the just head. Not, you're just not using enough of your brain? Yeah, that's probably it. Okay. It's just underutilized. Uh, speaking of underutilized brains. Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> uh, Facebook's in trouble recently because well, they may have been, I don't know, what do you say, cooking the books. They've been accused of bias Yeah. in the uh, trending section, which is if you go to the website. Trending should be neutral. It should just be what's trending on Facebook. Right. It should, One, the, two, three, four, the, five. The idea was it was explained is that it's a reflection of what people are talking about and what people are interested on the service right now. Right. And so it's up in the right-hand corner. It's not on the mobile. It's up. It's probably somewhere on the mobile apps, but I can't seem to find it, and I don't seem to it's care enough to find there. it. Because you go to the website, and it's right there on the right-hand side, yeah. and you're able to click through and see what kind of stories are there. A, what do they call them? A, a moderator, a, a curator, that's what they called them, a, a former employee of Facebook who used to have the job of going and finding the stories and putting them in that trending session a section had an interview on uh, the website Gizmodo where he says that they uh, he saw repeated evidence that people were taking um, conservative or Republican-type stories, pushing them away. So mm. websites and things that, that support that viewpoint, and may, even if they were trending, even there was a lot of popularity on, on Facebook, they would shove them aside and replace them with more liberal or uh, Democrat. That's not right. And, you know, of course, people are up in arms and people are going nuts. Um, the chairman of the Senate Committee or committee for Commerce demanded on Tuesday that Facebook expand, explain how it handles news articles in its trending list, responding to a report that the staff member had intentionally suppressed articles from conservative sources. In a letter to the, uh, the chairman, Senator John Thune, Republican of South Dakota, asked Facebook to describe the steps it was taking to investigate the claims and to provide any records about articles that its uh, news curators had excluded or added. Mr. Thune also also asked directly whether the curator had in fact manipulated the content. Hmm. So this is all in the statement to Facebook. If there's any level of subjectivity associated with it or if, as reports have suggested that there might have been, an attempt to suppress the conservative stories or keep them from trending and get uh, other stories out there. I think it's important for people to know that, Mr. Thune told reporters Tuesday. That's just a matter of transparency and honesty, and there shouldn't be any attempt to mislead the American public. My question is, <laughs> where's the First Amendment in you know freedom of speech? And this isn't like a public government thing. It's a private company, Facebook, right? right. You sign up. They're manipulating that list like crazy. We, we've talked repeatedly about the algorithm that's there. So right. every time you hit like, it sends you three stories that are that they think are close to what you just said you liked. If you said you don't like it, it you know, so it's right. constantly trying to to gauge your what what you want to see. It it probably 
it, there isn't a First Amendment thing here. This is, this is probably not something that the government can regulate. It says Mr. Thune's actions raised further questions about the content seen by 1.6 billion people who regularly use the website, Facebook. The platform's growing role as an arena for news distribution has raised some concerns that it could have undue influence over the flow of information. But any effort by the federal government to regulate or investigate editorial decisions could run into First Amendment protections. Yeah. But but what it should do is it should just make everybody that uses Facebook worried. But why wouldn't people already know that what they're looking at could be bias? Because they think Facebook is neutral. It says here, among Facebook users, 63% consider the platform to be a news service, according right. to a Pew survey. Right. So a news service, you would assume, is neutral. Why would you ever think a news service is neutral? Well, because that's the purported responsibility of the media. Is it? Yeah. If you go ask nine out of ten journalists, okay. not not TMZ journalists, but journalists at uh, Columbia University, okay. what I, their role of media is. I agree with Matt. Fox News and MSNBC, they're pretty – Those are pretty neutral. Pretty neutral. They, they they tend to stay right down the middle. They don't try, they don't try to choose a side at all. Right, but a real journalist at Fox News, if you can find one, <laughs> I'm just, okay, or a ahead. real journalist at MSNBC yeah. would be they would they would say they are uh, they are objective. But would the person at Facebook say that they're objective when they're choosing the news feed? Or no. Would, or would the people at Facebook say, we just we have your cat videos but and there's that, some news stories? I don't so. know that Facebook has declared themselves to be a news they, company. I don't believe they have. They, they haven't. They, they, they are have a, a company. New, they have a news division. So that's I guess that's the other question. Yeah. Do they count as the media? Well, again, they do count as the general media. But I would. there's a difference between being a member of the media and being a journalist. It's different. When it comes to constitutional protections? No. Because that's what they're going to probably end up running up against is, well, but again, are we the media? Is this the free press? No, but again, I don't think this has anything to do with – Congress will have no responsibility over them really except oversight. They can bring them in and drop the Facebook stock price I, by having by just asking the questions. We'll find out, won't we? <laughs> Crazy stuff, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, have we got a show for you. This is going to be an inspirational hour. Let's call it an hour of power. Today we will be talking with Brittany Fisher, uh, who has, I think, an incredible survivor story. A college track star falls 100 feet, breaks her back, paralyzed from the waist down. She went back, conquered the mountain that broke her, and um, she's here today to talk about it. Pretty amazing woman and an amazing story. And, by the way, she's got a really awesome dog with her. Cutest dog you've ever seen. It's about 8 feet tall. Cute as ever. Calm as can be. So we'll be meeting with Brittany and talking with her and her survivor story, her hero story, hoping really to help you see the good in the world. And I think through Brittany, you will feel an incredible spirit and see 
uh, really, that things are pretty good for all of us if we just will take on the role of making it happen. Um, also, we will be meeting with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. That's always a crazy uh, moment where you usually get a lot of really good um, uh, voiceovers uh, like this. Next I would time. win an election in the Vatican. That's Spencer Linton being Donald Trump, <laughs> claiming to that he would win an election in the Vatican. And, of course... We'll give you the latest and the greatest and everything we can do to celebrate Odometer Day. Happy Odometer Day. Time to make sure your odometer is still counting your miles effectively. But first, let's get to the headlines with our very own Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, welcome to the show. And what's going on in the news? Today, we have Max Scherzer has thrown two no-hitters, come within one strike of a perfect game, and met just about every expectation that accompanied the $210 million contract he signed. Scherzer struck out 20 batters to match the major league record for a nine-inning game in the Nationals' 3-2 victory over the Detroit Tigers on Wednesday night. Scherzer joined Roger Clemens, Kerry Wood, and Randy Johnson as the only big league pitchers to compile 20 strikeouts in nine innings. The affluenza teen Ethan Couch is going to be 21 years old by the time he gets out of jail. A Texas judge who had suggested he might reconsider his ruling affirmed it on Wednesday, meaning the 19-year-old will serve 180 days behind bars for each of the four people he killed while driving drunk on June 15, 2013. Couch, who was sentenced to 10 years probation as a juvenile and fled to Mexico with his mother last year after an apparent violation, had his case moved to adult court earlier this year. Spokesman for Sheriff D. Anderson says the ruling means Couch will stay in Tarrant County Jail's maximum security facility, where he has been held since February 5th. Throughout his campaign, California has been Bernie Sanders' promised land, a progressive state rich in delegates and a reliable source of hope. But now, with California's June 7th primary finally coming into view, Sanders may be heading into the Golden State hobbled. Despite notching two wins this month with more likely to come, Sanders is running low on cash, lower on cash than expected and replaced his top official in California on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton has moved to solidify her support in the state, which she won comfortably over Barack Obama back in 2008. Officials initially responded to a call about a man who was passed out in a car in the parking lot of a laundromat in Ohio on Tuesday night. When they approached the vehicle and knocked on the window, the man looked up and saw saw the police, and though he took off. Police say he then put the car into gear and floored it into a curb across Hillman and into the Burger King building. Mm. As he backed out of the crash, he hit a police SUV. An officer then had to punch out one of the vehicle's windows to shut the car off and pull the man out. Both the man and officers involved sustained only minor injuries, but the door to the Burger King that the driver crashed into, which is Aww. right by the kids' play area, I'll have you know, Ooh. is still closed. And now, Matt, this one's for you. Okay. How much do Texans love football? Nearly two-thirds of voters in McKinney, Texas, just voted to spend $62.8 million on what? a new high school high school football stadium. Fox News it rep- reports it will be the most expensive high school stadium in the country. The stadium, which was included in a $220 million school bond measure, will seat 12,000 people and include an event center. Oh. It will be shared by three high schools. I wow. quote, down south, football is a really big, big deal, the chairwoman of a pro stadium group explains. But some in the area are calling themselves visionaries, while anti-stadium groups feel that it is an embarrassment to their community. $65 million for yeah. a football stadium. For a high school football stadium. I wonder what you could do with $65 million of education. Right. That's a lot of books. I just thought I'd, I'd uh, close with that one, Matt. Well, I appreciate that. Really, just spin off of, of. I don't know. I was a little it's bit kind of a downer. Yeah, I was a little bit uh, <sighs> moved. 
I wouldn't say positively uh, moved by that story. Maybe next time don't end with such a downer. Just thought I'd give you something controversial. That was negative. Wow. And you don't even like football. Well, I mean, I like football. My dad played BYU football. I, I have no choice but to like football. I just don't know if it's worth a $62 million football stadium in high school. I mean, what about what about drill team? They, oh. need, to da- they need to dance on a nice field. Mm. You don't want them twisting an ankle. $62 million? How are they going to make the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader squad if they don't have a good football field? It's a proven fact. The more money you spend on a football field, the better you will perform. Really? But $62 million? Hold on, really? Uh, yep. Where, where did you, you, get, that where did you get that proven fact? Um, not my high school, but... Um, you made it up, didn't you? Yeah. That's not true because your high school played killer football on yeah. a nasty field. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of your guys end up going pro. True. Okay, hey. never mind. Yeah, so we just blew that up. Hmm. Not to be rude, but uh, to be rude. Caitlin, thank you. Well yeah. done. You nailed it. Piece of cake. Catch you on the flip side. Catch you on the flip side. Makes me feel so young and hip. Uh, Today's also Nutty Fudge Day, which is a day I guess we celebrate Nutty Fudge. I'm not much into fudge or nutty, even though I work with them every day. Uh, Today also, we got to tell you this crazy story. In uh, our Coach a Con section of the show... I want to give a little uh, feedback to a criminal, a man, a Maine man from Brunswick, Maine, was arrested Tuesday morning after allegedly stealing sunglasses, moonshine, snacks, and deodorant from a Rite Aid. So this guy's locked and loaded for some major party. (laughs) Sunglasses, moonshine, snacks, and deodorant. Haven John Willis, 41, was charged with misdemeanor theft and refusing to submit to arrest or detention, Brunswick police said. Officers were called to the Rite Aid shortly after 11 a.m., where employees accused Willis of stealing the sunglasses, moonshine deodorant, and sunflower seeds, a bag of combos, baked snacked, snacks, Ooh. Reese's Pieces, and Reese's Minis. Did he get the pizza combos? Uh, he must have. Those are good. It's <laughs> a high-quality snack it, right there. Are they worth going to jail for? Well. It all depends. Yeah. Well, if, if you did, maybe if he would have just taken the combos. He could have got away with it. Yeah. But it's all of that stuff. Well, I mean, you can't just walk around Rite Aid and put on some sunglasses and put on a hat and put on all this stuff and he, then walk out. At some point, he needed to grab a basket. Yeah. And then it's pretty obvious when you're trying to get that out the door. Then you just dash. Yeah. We do not think you should just dash. No. We think you should pull your credit card out and pay. Correct. But if you do, go for the combos and nothing else. And if you- well, I wouldn't go that far. According to Terry, if you are going to steal, just steal I'm, the combos. I'm just saying it's worth it. Get out of there. The highest quality piece of all the uh, items that he decided to take there were the, the the combos. I'm assuming they were pizza combos. But you know what? You got to give the guy some credit. He did get some deodorant. He's thinking of other people. Yeah, he's a giver. That's more for them than you. Anyway, you can only coach a con so far, and, and apparently they're still making moonshine. Apparently. I thought that was done. That hasn't made it to uh, the rest of the country. It's apparently. an old family recipe. Hey, um, talk to me about uh, – give me your favorite your favorite restaurant. If you had to choose your America – what would you say is America's favorite restaurant? 
since I guess America has, I'm not sure. What? I, so it'd have to be a franchise. Like a fast food type place? Is that what it would be? Um, probably not. Maybe more of a sit-down restaurant. Really? Not, not a fast food restaurant, a sit-down type of restaurant. America's favorite restaurant has more than 180 locations. All right. I'll give you guys clues. Are they? Is it something you've heard of before? Yeah, I just ate there. Really? Mm-hmm. Were you eating good in the neighborhood? I was eating good in the neighborhood. More than 250 menu options. It is known for its Cheesecake vast... Factory. Oh. Actually, it was Cheesecake Factory. Was it really? He just ruined it. Yeah, I know. He does that. Yeah, it's the Cheesecake Factory. 170 rotating varieties of cheesecake. That is America's favorite casual dining restaurant. See, I was going to say, uh, I would assume that the, if you're looking like the general American opinion, mm-hmm. that it would be a restaurant that doesn't really have that good of food. Yeah, no, that's good. And then start naming restaurants. And I didn't think that'd be the best. No, you didn't want to start yeah, dismissing a bunch. Right. Other top, uh, top scores were received by Olive Garden, mm. famous for the all-you-can-eat pasta pass, also known as cardiovascular destruction. <laughs> Carbo load. Let's <laughs> Carbo do this. Carbo load. Also, uh, Red Lobster's up there. Okay. That's good. Right? Um, and I guess apparently they got a huge boost from Beyonce. Yes. It was in a, a song that she has. Seems interesting. Yeah. Kind of a weird way to go big. They, 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 they used it well on social media once it came out. Did they? Yeah. Yeah, you got to take advantage of that. Um, so, uh, Chevy's Fresh Mex was there. Okay. Mellow Mushroom. Okay. I haven't heard of many of these. 99 Restaurant and Pub. Okay. Number seven was Olive Garden. Mm. Number six, Carrabba's Italian Grill. Yeah, you can draw on the uh, the, 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 they cover the table with like a bunch of crayons. The butcher butcher paper and Uh you can just draw. Yeah, that's great. Five, Romano's Macaroni Grill. Four, Red Lobster. Three, Mm. Bonefish Grill. Okay. Mmm, sounds healthy. Two, the Melting Pot. And number one, the Cheesecake Factory. There you go. And I really only go there for cheesecake. I think everyone does, but I think they kind of try to make it look good by mm-hmm. ordering pasta or something. And then they come up after your huge meal. And Would you like some dessert? And you're like, sure. I don't care if it blows out my side. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's I, take that home. Yeah, we'll take it home. Along with bag up our, the rest of our food we didn't eat. My brother in the past, he's gone to the Cheesecake Factory for like his anniversary uh-huh. and gives us his four kids. Right, so they go nuts. Oh, lucky, yeah, yeah. So we get the kids for several hours, yeah. And then when they come back, they bring cheesecake as a "we're sorry for whatever they just did." Yeah, maybe that'll fix the wall they broke. Right, that's great. Did you hear about the bride and groom who demanded more from their guests when it came to presents? No, can you do that? This is apparently something that's going uh, very popular in the UK right now. Not the practice of asking, but this story, okay, causing okay. a lot of controversy as to what you're supposed to do. A woman writes into a advice column. She says her friends, a pair of newlyweds, the uh, ex-colleague, the bride, that kind of thing. She, she gets invited to the wedding, so she gives them, uh, let's just say it's a $100 check. Just say hey, just a hundred bucks. They, I mean, they, that's a good get, right? They there. apparently requested cash. Don't bother buying us anything. Just give us cash. Just give us the money. So whatever. Okay, right, here's yeah. 100 bucks. Here's 100 bucks. Within three days, she was inundated with more than 1,000 responses to her question on this advice form. What should I do? Because now they're asking her that it wasn't quite enough. The couple? Yes. The couple's like, the $100, not enough. Maybe you could sweeten the deal a little bit. Are you kidding? 
uh, with many urging her, the the friend to cancel the check. Yeah. Right. Just just they're, they're ungrateful. Just just cancel the check. They yeah. get nothing. Uh, according to the poster, uh, the, the the email from the newlyweds read, we were surprised that your contribution didn't seem to match the warmth of your good wishes on your big day. In view of your own position, if you want to spend any or send any adjustment, it would be thankfully received. That so the warmth of your gift didn't crazy reflect how happy you seem to be for us. You seemed a lot happier than your monetary contribution the demonstrates. Gu- the guest said that uh, the comment of her own position probably referred to a recent inheritance that she had received. So apparently, the couple knows about her inheritance and is like, you know, we know you have more money than that. Holy cow! <laughs> you know what? That's time that you get them. The, you get them the wedding taser. So the post on the website was, please, what do I do now? I've never come across anything like this before, and I still can't quite believe that they've done it. But since they have, should I reply? Should I call them on the phone or just ignore it? Or what should I do? And then there's all these comments of just ignore it. What's going on? People, the, the biggest one was just cancel the check. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you know what I would do? I would take, let's just say she had an inheritance. And maybe she inherited something she didn't want, you know, because sometimes when people die, they give you stuff that you didn't want. Yeah. So I'd take the check back. So you're right. Let me give you some of the inheritance. And then I'd hand them like the old wigs from Grandma Louise that died. (laughs) She gave me all of her wigs. You can have all of Grandma's wigs. Yeah. I mean, wigs are expensive. That one right there is worth 200 bucks. That one's worth 30 and just but add it up. This this happens when I got married. I think we got three rice cookers and a couple toasters oh, yeah. or whatever. So you just save them, That's right? And you give them to somebody else when they get married. That's right. Not a big deal. Or Not just do what deal. I do: clocks. You give them clocks. Go to the store, buy a clock. Everyone needs a clock. Well, look at you. Yeah. Aren't you great? What did Terry give you for your birthday? Oh, a clock. A clock, and everyone's all, huh? Is it that clock that just ticks in our bedroom all night? Tick, tick. Yeah. I try to get one that's sort of annoying. You get a Because, I mean, you, you can't really be mad at a clock, but most people, it's like, I have a phone, so what do I need a clock for? But yeah. you've got a house, so maybe a clock. So it's kind of a confusing gift. Yeah, it's and, weird. But I gave them something. So, hey, what are they going to do? Complain? Well, apparently they will. <sighs> yep. Nice gift, Terry. You can just sit and look at it all out. I'll have Sure love our clock. Boy, I would have killed for a rice cooker. Didn't get one rice cooker. Got three clocks. Anyway, see, these are ideas you don't get from any other station. No other show gives you such depth. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will be joined by Brittany Fisher, who's here to tell us uh, really an amazing comeback story um, of her own life. Survivor story, really. And um, I think she's going to bring a lot of light and a lot of peace and a lot of spirit. So stick with us. Brittany Fisher up next, telling us how to overcome the difficult things in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. has different experiences, good and, and bad, and, and traumatic things, and sad things, and hard things that have happened in life. Claim your experiences. Don't let them claim you. That is the voice of Brittany Fisher, our next guest. 
And, uh, you know, we all go through trials, whether it's a physical ailment, the death of a loved one, or just paying the bills. It's not about the times we fall in life, but the times we pick ourselves back up. And our special guest today in studio is a great example of this. In 2012, Brittany Fisher took a 100-foot fall off of a cliff while rappelling, which left her paralyzed from the waist down. But the athlete didn't let that stop her. She relearned to walk and uh, live life to the fullest. 24-year-old Brittany now joins us today to discuss her journey through the struggles of paralysis and to teach us how to overcome trials in our lives. Brittany Fisher, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you. I've read all about you, <laughs> and your aunt will just not stop talking about you. Christine <laughs> She's family. Knockleby. She's got to do that. <laughs> She's here at, she works here at BYU Broadcasting, but she loves you to death. Mm, feelings mutual. You're, you're a good girl. You're a good girl. And you brought your dog Cooper. Yes, a, my, a labradoodle about what eight feet tall? <laughs> just shy. <laughs> but he's just a baby. Just a little over a year. Definitely still has but he, puppy tendencies. He's huge. You know, you understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's a big dog. So let me get this straight. You were a track star up at Utah State, a runner. You go. You go rappelling. Why? Um, you know, coach had told us, like, we normally never get any kind of break between cross country in the fall, a couple weeks, like one week off, and then we're back to training for track in the spring. And so we had just finished indoor. We had just won indoor conference. Um, and our coach had given us, like, a couple days before we had our first outdoor meet in Arizona. It was on, we're supposed to be at the airport on Tuesday. So I was like, perfect. After. After practice on Friday, I had my bags all packed, my track bag and my climbing bag packed so I could go down to St. George to climb with some of my friends for a couple days before Holy cow! we had to be back running. Were you a climber? Was this something you did a lot? Um, I had gotten into it recently. I had been a zipline tour guide the summer before and then just hand in hand started climbing that, that fall and just really enjoyed it and loved it and spent Almost every night at the Rock House, the, Did you really? the climbing gym. So I'd go to practice, get a little homework and food, and then go climbing. So Go hang out at the gym. So it was a hobby that I really picked cool. up fast and enjoyed. So tell us about the accident and tell us what happened. I mean, this is a this had to be, you know, the most traumatic day of your life. Well, maybe not because you're about to get married. <laughs> so you, you may, hopefully you're not a bridezilla now. You know, I don't call it traumatic at all. Like it's... Like, I've been back there, and, and that experience wasn't traumatic either. And people oftentimes yeah. like use that word traumatic because it was. It was a big accident, huge injuries, huge repercussions. But, um, you know, that night I ended up um, falling that, that 80 to 100 feet. And when I hit the ground, I was really fuzzy, really blurry. Um, and I received a blessing. And from that moment on, I was I was with it. And I even, like, after I... I could breathe again because yeah, falling eighty to hundred feet will knock yeah. the air out of you literally. Yeah. Um, but once I could like breathe again and kind of breathe through the pain and get it under control, I started thinking like, oh, he can piggyback me out of here. I'll be fine. Just like, lift me up. I think I'll be good. Like, I wouldn't look at my legs because I was pretty sure they were broken, and I kept saying like. I'll have to call coach and apologize. Like, I won't be able to run on Tuesday. And um, so as time passed and as we were waiting for for search and rescue and the medical um, assistant to help, to come help, um, that's when it started to set in and I realized how bad it was. And so, This could be, yeah. Then all of a sudden, this is huge. Yeah. But but again, you handled it like 
incredibly well, it seems like. Well, what does that process go from where you then get taken into the hospital and then you start hearing news that you're not going to walk? You know, I don't even ever remember specifically hearing like the words like you'll never walk again. And I'm sure they explain that. But it was such a whirlwind from from getting in the helicopter and being life flighted to Vegas. And it was such a whirlwind going in for testing and getting wheeled out of an MRI and mm. into a CAT scan. And I remember like my first moments of peace being in that MRI machine, the huge loud machine. But I was just alone Finally and it alone. was quiet and no one was like talking to me and asking me questions. And um, it wasn't until like a couple days later after I was stable and out of ICU I was looking at my legs and they were so swollen and lifeless and cut up. And and that's when it started to like really sink in hmm. that that my life was changed forever. Yeah. What do you – what – I mean I imagine and I know you talk about this in a lot of uh, the things you do. But um, this, this was your challenge. Your challenge was a fall. But other people have challenges. And so – so as you're going through this process, you have to process the fact that, OK, my life's going to be different. I'm going to be in a chair. What made you ever think, I'm going to go back to the mountain? Because that was one of the ways I found out about you is seeing you go back and do the same rappel. Yeah, Which four years to later. me seemed like craziness. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, it wasn't traumatic. And I was a little nervous going back. Like, how am I going to feel? Am I going to feel bitterness or anger for – um, some of the negligence and and things that night, and like, and my mom was had the same nerves too. We weren't sure if we wanted any news there because yeah. we weren't sure how we were going to feel. But once again, it was just like filled with peace. Um, it had rained early that morning. They were kind of nervous about those repercussions, but it was just like kind of cleaning the slate for me. Like that fresh rain, like the sky was clear. It was just a freshness in the air, and it was just filled with peace. Mm. Like I said, there's nothing like traumatic or negative about that mountain. The only thing that it did for me is just help me conquer that mountain, conquer that ex- experience. Yeah. So it didn't rule me anymore. So it didn't define me. So yeah. um, so you, I could claim it. How? So you don't want to be defined by any of it, really? It's, no. I mean, it's part of your life, but it's not you. Yeah, it's something people always see right away when they meet me. There's no way. And yeah. like we were saying, like other people have their own mountains and own falls to get mm-hmm. over and get through. And, and um, one of mine is so physical. One of my challenges is so physical, but every, everyone else's, they carry... Yeah. silently and you have no idea. And so um, it's just something that it's my physical accident and this physical injury has made me more more keenly aware of of those non-visible injuries and burdens that yeah. people carry. Do you um, – I guess because that, that's the thing. As an outsider, I don't – what else do I look at? There's a chair. There's a dog. I mean you you're, you look healthy, fit – Able, vibrant, your brain is on top of it. You got it all going on, um, but there's a chair. It's just not you, though. Yeah, I just have never been like, I've never identified with my chair. I've never wanted that to be my identity. But there was a time in the hospital when I was looking at those swollen, lifeless, cut up legs, and I like went through an identity crisis. I felt like I had lost myself. Like before, I was this rock climber, this runner, you know, always on the run. and on the go. And all of a sudden, I was like, who is Brittany Fisher anymore? Yeah. I'm not a student athlete. I'm not a rock climber. I'm not a zip liner. Who am I? And and it was in those moments and in the weeks and months and even years to follow that I was able to 
to realize those things that are that are important, the characteristics that we have, you know, bravery and integrity and yeah. courage and kindness. And those are the things that define us. That's not, who we are. Not the sports we play or necessarily the jobs that we have. Like those are important, but yeah. it, it more has to do with your characteristics and your relationships with other people. You know, I have the same pro- – a lot of people look at me and they just see me as like just ruggedly good looking. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because it's so true. OK. Thank you. And – um but it's so true, isn't it, that you've got this – it's character, it's integrity, it's honesty. It's all of these more – they're virtues. They're, that's who you are. And you have to almost break the shell to figure that out. It's almost like God or life is just going to do it to you. You know what I mean? I don't think God threw you off the cliff, right? No, definitely not. But he also didn't stop it and it actually might be the way that you access God. Yeah, no, I love what you said that like he didn't stop it. He he didn't cause it. I always I yeah, firmly no. believe he didn't cause this to happen like wasn't because of something Mm-mm. I've done or something um I needed to do. Um but I believe that he allowed it to happen because we were given free agency on this earth. We we're also given consequences and so he I think he still intervened and saved my yeah. life. He oh, still, yeah. you know, stepped in, but he still allowed some of those natural consequences such as this paralysis and broken bones and and different injuries. So he still allowed um the natural consequences of decisions that night to to take its course, but through it all it's been such a refining and strengthening and like just mind-opening process oh, yeah. and I it's like this is now the portal through which you come to know him or and find peace and know yourself. It's like before that, you don't know. You you thought you were the track star. Yeah. Well, before that, I thought I knew where my life was going and I was heading that, that direction full speed and nothing was going to stop me. And not that this accident had to happen to no. to make me realize that, but it definitely put a halt on those plans and showed me what what his will and his direction for yeah. me was. And just that I'm so much more than a runner. I'm so much more than this the student athlete, than this rock climber. And um, I guess he just really helped me like tap into my divine potential and my full potential. That's huge. And again, anybody, this could be anybody, right? I mean, if it wasn't this, it could have just been depression. It could have been postpartum depression. It could have been... Uh, struggling to get a child here. It could be anything. So anybody out there could have issues and and need to basically do the same thing you're doing. Yeah, it's definitely. And that's like been my biggest platform is, you know, one of my challenges is so physical, but everyone else's are invisible. And that's why it's so important that we treat others with kindness because people are always extra nice to me and asking if I need help. And I call them para perks. Like <laughs> I can get away with a lot of stuff <laughs> because of para perks. <laughs> but other great. people are carrying these invisible burdens and we have no idea. And just how important it is to, to show kindness and treat others with kindness because we have no idea what burdens they may be carrying. Right. Right. And that's what's so funny is a lot of us, I think, don't know how to treat somebody in a wheelchair because we think you're different, but you're not. You're just the same human being carrying, I mean, with a visible burden. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not different from any other human, but I'm definitely, people told me in the hospital, like, you're the same Brittany, like you're the same girl. But four years later, as I stood at that cliff, I realized like, I'm not the same. Like so many attributes have been strengthened and characteristics have been strengthened. Like I'm not the same 
Britney Fisher as four years ago, but I'm still Britney Fisher. Yeah, yeah, and and you're, you're I don't know if you're better, but you're 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 you, you're you evolved, right? You're generation two, <laughs> generation three. I mean, you grow up. Yeah, it's just been this refining process, and um, you know, just not that I'm perfect. I'm definitely no. far from perfect, oh, yeah, but no. it's definitely improve myself. I was doing an interview with a friend of mine who works for the Desert News and we were both talking about how when we worked EFY together, we were both great people. We felt like good characteristic, good qualities. And she went on to serve a mission and I went on to go through this accident. And now we both feel like we are so much better and so much more refined. And we were hmm. good people before, but we're better now. We're definitely not to our best, but yeah. just like I think it was President Hinckley that said like good, better, best mm-hmm. and those choices that you make in life. Yeah. And I think it goes along with who this, you are as a person. And it really – I guess it comes down to – it's just choice, right? So you, you didn't even – from where you were to where you are, you probably made thousands of little choices to deal with it, to look at it differently because it's, it's choice making, isn't it? I love what President Monson said. He says, decisions determine destiny. And that was like my big theme on my three-year anniversary. Every anniversary is like sentimental and I always like, you know, contemplate yeah. and think about it. And that was my third-year anniversary was just focusing on how decisions determine destiny. And fourth anniversary was going back to the cliff and doing it all over <laughs> again. So I don't know what I'm going to do for the fifth. but Just get married. <laughs> yeah, there we just go. Just celebrate your anniversary. There you go. Now, that's a big thing that's coming up for you too, right? You're, you're engaged to Trevor. Uh-huh. What's his last name? Trevor Frank. Trevor Frank. Of Providence, Utah. <laughs> It'll be Brittany Frank. And uh, was Trevor with you this whole time? No. Um, and actually, that was one of my big concerns after my accident in the hospital. I remember thinking, who's ever going to yeah. want me? And I remember thinking, like, you know, um, like anyone I meet after this isn't going to know the old Brittany, isn't going to know the spunky runner and yeah. the adventurous outdoors girl. And so that worried me. I was like, I, I don't think I'll ever get married. And so we met, oh gosh, it wasn't even a year after my accident, we had met and started dating. Um, and just to, to see him like at first be hesitant. I mean, yeah. it is, it's something oh, yeah. physical right away. And they don't want to break right you. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many, you know, 22 year old boys are folding up a grandma walker on a date? Like, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> right. You know, definitely is a lot to not look past, but it's definitely like we always talk about first impressions and initial attractions right. and all these things. And my first impression is definitely very different. I can't cover up the wheelchair or the grandma walker right. touches. <laughs> but you also have a big dog that probably licked all over it. <laughs> well, I didn't have him at the oh, time. Okay. Cooper's an addition, recent addition. Cooper's but... like a kid now. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So when's the date? Um, July 9th. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, you're exciting. moving on. There's nothing stopping you now. No, I mean, that's what going back to that cliff really helped me shut that door and just open a new chapter in my life of getting married and moving forward like that just doesn't have to hang over me anymore. And I can really move forward. I mean, I'm always going to live with those repercussions and this injury, but like the cliff itself and and the event and the experience um, doesn't have to to rule or own my life. Right. And you are you able to walk? You're able to you're able to be mobile with the chair, but you can walk. Yeah, I can walk with arm crutches, and then I can walk um, holding on to like Trevor, yeah. or family member's shoulders or arms, and then I can take independent steps. It's just real shaky and yeah. I'll fall real easily. But you understand, you're not supposed to be walking, so you should just stop that. <laughs> I mean, no one can stop you. 
No, I mean, I just got, I went to dinner with my roommate from Craig Hospital, the hospital where I rehab for three and a half months. And we both are walking. She's walking a little better than I am. She ran her first half marathon. Like she's doing awesome. But we both had different injuries. But it was really cool to both be able to take a picture and be standing next to each other. Because four years ago, we were in a hospital in wheelchairs and body braces and neck braces and having other people do all of our our personal care and just to see... What, what do you tell the rest of us? So when the rest of us get caught up and we're overwhelmed because we have acne or because our hair's not right or anything that's besetting us, like just depression, anxiety, those frustrations of life, what advice do you give us? You know, just as you were saying that, it made me think of this funny quote that it, it's kind of a coined phrase that everyone knows but my sister will always say like why do bad things happen to good people but she'll say it after she like drops a cookie or forgets her textbook <laughs> like, in her car like yeah. she's obviously being sarcastic but I really did like start thinking about that you know that's a real question that a lot of people have in life when they face these different challenges small or big um, present or past and um you know, I've just really come to learn that without without these trials, we, we can't improve, we can't change, and we can't grow. And that's what this life is about. And there are lessons that I've learned in, in these past four years that I could not have learned in any other way. And, you know, everyone's going through their own their own cliff, their own fall, that they're learning things that are personally refining them and teaching them and improving those characteristics. And I mean, one of the biggest things that I've I've learned through this experience is I've truly learned how to mourn with those who mourn, you know, people who are going through their own experiences, their own invisible trials and, and burdens. Um, I like have cried with them and yeah. I'm not a crier. And so it's just amazing to me to see how my my sympathy and empathy has been deepened and That's my cool. compassion for others. Powerful. And so you deal with it with your own character and it sounds like you reach out. Then you reach out Definitely. with love, with caring, empathy. Man, you're amazing. Brittany Fisher's her name. Brittany, are, is there a place that people can get, can get a hold of you? A blog, a website, anything you're doing? Yeah, they can get a hold of you. Um, I have a blog. It's brittanyannfisher.blogspot.com, I think. We'll post it on our Twitter feed as well. Okay. Brittany, thank you. <laughs> Brittany Fisher's her name, folks. Hero is her game. <laughs> She's teaching us how to uh, to deal with our tragedies. Not even a tragedy because she wouldn't call it that, to, but to conquer our cliffs. That's probably a better way to put it. Brittany Fisher, we appreciate you. We'll take a break. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. We're wrapping it up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's go down now to the the only place that raises me up at about 13 minutes before the hour that I get to end my radio show. Our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, John man. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> now keep going. No. Okay. Darn it. That was fantastic. How are you, gentlemen? Yeah, baby. We're doing okay. Hey, I just had on a, a young lady named Brittany Fisher, 
who fell 100 feet, broke her back, paralyzed, now walking. Wow. She's amazing. Wow. That's, that's why we're playing this music. Yeah. I thought that's just a good segue to you guys. Yeah. Well... We feel insignificant now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For the norm. Hey, don't feel insignificant. Hey, Jerem, thanks for waving to me this morning. Yeah. It, it raises yeah. me up every time you um, stop and just give me a little nod, a little wave. Yeah. Makes me feel better. Yeah, we oh, all need to be raised up. I mean, it's funny. Spencer doesn't do it much, but um, but <laughs> but I don't know why. I mean. I don't know why he calls him out like that. But I mean, okay. he's, he's a busy guy. Hey, thanks, Matt. I understand. And he has a big entourage. He has like twelve people that circle him. <laughs> I know it is. It is a security issue every time he comes. <laughs> it's a security issue. Okay, I got to ask you this. Uh, first things first. Um, uh, did you know that? Oh, first of all, favorite restaurant. Do you know the the number one restaurant for casual dining in the country? What is it? For casual dining in the country. A little quiz oh, for you guys. A, oh, that's a good question. I'll give you each an answer. Um, Applebee's. Uh, Chili's. Nope. Nope. Uh, Olive Garden, Outback Steakhouse. Apple, Apple, uh, Olive Garden is about third or fourth. Number one, Five Guys. Casual dining, like what? What you, falls like, into that's that? That's not category? fast food, right? You're saying the Olive Garden, food. so it would be a sit down. Okay, a sit down restaurant. Restaurant, uh, Cheesecake Factory is the number one. They have the biggest Cheesecake Factory, the biggest one. menu in the history of restaurants. Two hundred and fifty. Uh, items that you can choose from. It's dumb. Serendipity. I can't even choose. I sat there for three hours one day before I ordered. That menu is massive. It's a massive menu. Yeah. <laughs> I don't tolerate like many things that are over three hours. Ah, it's a massive menu! <laughs> <laughs> two, uh, number two is the melting pot. Oh, I like yeah. the melting pot. Nothing, nothing better than a yeah. fondue date. Yeah. Pricey, but Pricey. I like it. Mm-hmm. Is there a melting pot in Utah? Yes, yeah. I like there is? Downtown yes, Salt Lake City. Downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, bone, Bonefish Grills, number three. Red Lobster, number what? four. Bonefish what, what Grill? What is Bonefish Grill? Is bonef- that like an East Coast thing? It must be. Because, and it's also very healthy looking, bonefish which is probably grill. why we don't have one. Bring your Harley in here and get some bonefish. <laughs> eat all the bonefish you can eat. If you don't have sunglasses on, you can't get in this place. <laughs> You're great. And Red Lobster. And Red Lobster is number I four. I love just mm. – I, I don't even yeah. like the lobster, but I could drink that butter forever. <laughs> yeah, my wife, Olive Garden and Red Lobster. That's yeah. a great day. the last time I ate at Red Lobster, I was with my parents in the Orlando, Florida area around the Space Coast. About how long ago? When you were that 12? Was probably like – man, that was probably seven or eight years ago. Wow. Yeah, you got to get out. Well, I just I don't know. Red Lobster's not my jam. <laughs> you're more of a you're more of a melting pot kind of guy. What, yeah. I'm to think, what am I? What am I? What kind What's of your a very... bigger conversation as opposed to what restaurant Who am do you I? like? What am I? What am I? That is pretty deep. We don't have scuba gear to go there right I know. now. Jerry, need... If you were to pinpoint a what was the word you used to describe these restaurants, Matt? A casual dining casual, restaurant. If you if you were to pinpoint a casual dining restaurant for me and my personality, what would it be? I don't know. To think about this, that. will go a long way in determining where our friendship lies. Oh, what really? is really this, this definition? <laughs> not the seven to nine years of friendship. 
Not that, not that. This, this is it. That's that's all talk. you know, menial stuff. <laughs> this is where it really matters. Meanwhile, Matt's like, I have uh, other questions for you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. No, for no, this is the conversation because I've got I've got one for you. A casual dining place that I think personifies you. Okay, Chuck E. Cheese. Oh man! Oh, oh, I got one. I've got Come it. Come on, <laughs> I've man! Got, I've got it. Come on! What? Sensuous sandwich. Ooh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says Spencer Linton more than sensuous, sensuous sandwich. sandwich. Sensuous sandwich? Mm. That's the name of a real place. Excellent. I, I dated a girl that worked there once, and uh, oh. yeah. was, was three she's... sandwiches, baby. <laughs> <laughs> now that girl could make a sandwich. That's kind of crazy. Uh... Hey, okay, here's another question for you. Okay. Um, high school football in Texas, they're building a 65 or $63 million high school football stadium. Yeah, I heard yeah. about that. For yeah. three schools, I guess. Uh, is oh, that, that makes it worth this, it. This happens more often, not that expensive. Is that in Washington, high, because it rains a lot, they'll make a nice turf field that will have like a covering for the fans that, that where they'll play soccer and football. It's not $65 million, but this happens often. But is this, is this excessive? It seems excessive. Not for Texas. No. People... Pay there's, there's to watch money. high school football like we pay to watch college football in this state. Do they really? In Texas, they've yes. Got, they've got the money. Like sometimes people are like, "Do these athletes in uh, pro sports get paid too much?" No, because the people are paying the money and they're generating the revenue via TV, so they are worth that. The yeah, market dictates what someone's worth. Right? Don't you think it's really about cheer cheer squad trying to get on the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders? Remember when Although that was important. a reality television show? I, what was it like on CMT or A&E or something? I thought it was a joke. That was a real reality series. About high school football? Make, no, making oh. the Cowboys cheerleading squad. Listen, no, yeah, it's still there. Yeah, they're still doing it. Are they still doing it? Yeah, I think they still do it. Any reality show flies if a show like Hoarders... <laughs> Can exist. <laughs> now that show is fascinating to me. Yes. Well, and make money on the the sad mental illness of others. Yeah, that's not. Cool. Oh, that is true. That's not. <laughs> I'm laughing. That's, but it that's is fascinating. Sad. To listen, me. listen. Does everyone not have a story? Right? Isn't oh yeah. That story track story on BYU track, TV. We, exactly. They knock on random doors and say, "What's your story?" Like, I love the premise of that. Yeah, that's really cool. Speaking of stories and story trek, um, you guys got any for your show? Absolutely, we do. What do you, you want to share them or just? Our guy Bill Connolly at SB Nation produced his BYU football preview for 2016, including win projections, win probabilities Ooh. for all 12 regular season games. Some intriguing data there. Excellent. And we're going to talk about the one game that BYU is an underdog in that they have to win for this season to exceed expectations. Hmm. It's Utah. That's the easy People answer. People working together. That's the easy answer. <laughs> okay, that's a good show. Anything else? Yeah, that's a great uh, show. Barry Trammell, Oklahoman. It's a newspaper there. Uh, what is Oklahoma's stance on Big Twelve uh, expansion or not? Do they want BYU in? Yeah, do He'll the, mass, in do on the that? masses really want expansion in Oklahoma? And do they want BYU? Hmm. I wish that the Big Twelve was like Oklahoma was originally, and then BYU could just run out there like Tom Cruise in in. Far and away, is that the name of it? We were here sooner. And you just show up and you stick there and you're like, we're in the Big 12 because we got here sooner than you. Yeah. Yeah. Plus Eric Urey, San Francisco, or BYU Baseball at San Francisco. He joins us live from San Francisco. Oh, he does. That makes SportsCenter's top 10. He's been on SportsCenter's top 10. That is a good show. Pound for pound. You got to love it.
Boys, I'm impressed. We are the Floyd Mayweather of sports talk shows. <laughs> Lots of bling. Lots of grill work. Lots of money. Lots of wins. Lots of, <laughs> Lots money. of money. Okay, with the exception of that part. <laughs> with the exception of money and bling. And wins. And wins. You're the Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> You're just more the Floyd. And yeah. cars. Yeah, I understand. Guys, have a great show. That's going to be cool. And uh, have fun at Chuck E. Cheese. Sensuous sandwich. Sensuous sandwich. <laughs> Good to know you guys. Bye. Have a great show. Knock Bye. them dead. Bye-bye. They're amazing. They do it again. Every show, pound for pound. They've got all these people from all over the place. We're going to bring in so-and-so from SB and blankety-blank from blankety-blank. Terry's got to get on that. We need more uh, live uh, interviews with national ESPN people. I'm just saying. He's not liking that. Hey, um, a couple of other things we've got to touch before we uh, get out of here. One is this this great story. Listen to this. Again, if you ever believe that people don't care, come on. Uh, workers are helping a woman recover diamond jewelry that she that was thrown in the trash. A Massachusetts woman says she was ecstatic when waste workers helped her find a diamond, some of her diamond jewelry that she accidentally had thrown away. Cecilia Callahan's her name says that she was cleaning her 3.1 carat engagement ring and a 1.75 carat diamond pendant that her grandmother and her grandmother's diamond ring in preparation for a wedding anniversary dinner last week. She says she wrapped them in paper towels and left them on the countertop. She tossed the towels when she heard the trash truck coming. 51-year-old Norwell woman says she was heartbroken when she discovered her mistake and a transportation supervisor at the transfer station made arrangements for the truck to drop the trash off at the Braintree station and uh, Callahan and her husband and the loader operator searched the garbage until they found the jewelry. So that's one of our hero stories. And the other hero story that we got to get to because we want to leave you with some good news are some good Samaritans rescue a woman from a burning car. We'll post the video on our, our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. But several drivers stopped to rescue a woman whose car caught fire on the roadside in Minnesota on Mother's Day. Um, and uh, listen to this. Three drivers stopped beside the Minnesota highway to pull a woman from her crashed vehicle just before it caught fire on Mother's Day. The decision to intervene in an emergency situation can be difficult. And in seconds, the bystanders, that they had to assess what was going on, and they jumped in and uh, pulled this woman out. Listen to this. Sean Karen, a senior studying philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College, said the motivation was his mother. He was driving home for Mother's Day, and when he saw a vehicle on the side of the road, he thought of his mother's stories of rescue and an emergency medical technician as an emergency medical technician. And he rushed to this person's car, and the driver was injured and struggling to move. And uh, flames were coming up from the bottom of the car. And I said, we need to get you out of there, he recalled. I frantically tried to get her out, but she slipped out of my hands. Two other drivers rushed to the help, and they helped Karen uh, pull this, this person out of the car. So to all of those that were involved in that heroic story, and just to everybody that's willing to pull over sometimes and just push the car that that needs help to get through the intersection or there to offer some money or some support to somebody that needs help. Folks, we're humans helping humans, right? And uh, we can't do it without each other. Let's remember that. Until tomorrow, take care of each other. We'll be back again tomorrow right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.